Guys, I uh, had a bad afternoon. Did you drop your phone again? No. Uh, did I tell you, though, that I realized I had dropped, I think I said this on the show, I have dropped my 12 Pro only indoors ever, and I've dropped it in such a way that I noticed I did shatter the back ever so slightly. Like, <laughs> if you don't look at it, if you don't look doing? at it up close, I don't know, but I've decided unequivocally this is the last time I will be caseless, caseless. I just can't do it. It's just, it, I can't do it. They're too fragile. Oh, apparently not. So funny, mm-hmm. funny that you mentioned that, actually. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> no, it's not, not too bad. But, um, so I've been going caseless this year, first time in a number of years. And the other day, I just, I dropped it. Like, it was, I wish I had some good story, but I don't, and like, I never drop my phone. Like, it's, it's never been a thing. Uh, well, the problem is, Almost every year, I drop my phone like once or twice, and normally it's in a case, and so I kind of get forgiven. I hope oh, that was a freebie. And this year, <laughs> Apple Care is my case. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, so I'm just you know walking the dog, and like I have like my phone in my hand, adjusting something, and he pulls right at that moment. And you know, normally it doesn't happen, but it happened, and I dropped the phone from a height of three feet onto a concrete sidewalk, and uh, it's fine in the sense that. Neither glass pane has broken, but the edges are pretty scuffed up, and they're like they're like rough when you run your finger over them. That's undesirable. Like it's yeah, it's fun. Like it's not bad enough to invoke the Apple Care and you know get it replaced, but it's just kind of a reminder. Like oh, I guess that's what cases are for. I I wish I didn't need them, and maybe I still don't. If I can like have a phone for almost a year and only drop it once and only have a few scratches on the outside that that result from that you get some sandpaper or a metal file you can take down those rough edges i thought about that but because it like i have the red finish like if, if i had just like regular silver aluminum like uh, uncolored a finish. red magic marker and color it in. <laughs> yeah well <laughs> a but touch up, a touch-up pen from a car you know i don't know right. <laughs> yeah well and like and anywhere that the finish gets scratched the aluminum shows through it's so, like the red's already gone from those sections but I uh, I I would ha- I would hate to have to make my the, the silver patches larger <laughs> that, that are already there. Yeah, yep. That's not why my afternoon was bad, but yes, I agree. I, you know, and I love I love 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 the look and in many ways the feel of the twelve Pro, and I love the color. Like I liked the the foresty green from last year, but this like deep blue I freaking adore. I just absolutely adore it, but. I have decided without question that this upcoming next phone for me, I must have a case. And Erin, I didn't get a case for her 12 Pro because they didn't have like the light pink case that she's used for years and years and years. They had other not as good colors and she absolutely shattered her back within like a week, Um, like I did last year. And so the List family is no longer allowed to to go caseless. But I digress. The reason I'm sad is because I... I went to pick up my car from Safe Light Repair, Safe Light Replace because I had gotten dinged by a rock a uh, weekend before last on my windshield and it was starting to spider, so I was getting it replaced. And the Safe Light Place happens to be sort of kind of downtown Richmond. And right around the corner from there is my favorite barbecue place in Richmond, a place called ZZQ, which is like nationally ranked, one of the best barbecue joints in the entire country, et cetera, et cetera. It's a Texas-style brisket and other things. And from everything I've read, from people who are born and bred Texas, they say this is one of the only places you can get Texas, Texan brisket outside of Texas, right? Um, well, we go, and remember that the List family is not currently eating indoors, we're not, you know, we're still being fairly paranoid on account of the kids. 
And ZZQ has a really good back patio. And so the thought was, you know, the kids and Aaron would go to the back patio and I would run through the line, grab the food, and we would go to the back and eat in the back patio outside. And I, I'm pulling up to ZZQ, which is this very, very small parking lot. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, gosh, this is going to be a mess. You know what? Because uh, Aaron had to drop me off so we could pick up my car. So we're in two cars. So I said, I send Aaron a text using Siri. You take whatever spot you can find in the lot. I'll go parallel park elsewhere. And I come up to the parking lot and it's empty. Like, oh, this is fantastic. It was early even for the List family. And we uh, we eat early as it is, but it was like five o'clock, which even for us is early. And so I pull into the parking lot and there's like one or two other cars. And I'm thinking, oh, this is magnificent. The back patio is going to be, be empty. We'll be able to waltz right through the line. This is great. And we finally get up to the door after unloading the kids. Sold out. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Do you guys have barbecue places that will just sell out? It was devastating. I was so sad. I thought you were going to say that it was closed <laughs> down, that it wasn't no, there anymore. No, no, no. Thank goodness. Oh, that happened to mine. Oh, wait, the one uh, the one in Westchester? The yeah, one it's you- gone. Although I, I oh, heard that- Oh, that's really too bad. I mean, it, I mean it, didn't, it didn't survive COVID at all. They didn't even, like, as soon as COVID started, they were gone. But oh. uh, I heard that it's being picked up by another barbecue place, but I haven't been back to- uh, in town to see it yet oh man that's a real bummer i really wanted to i mean i don't have any plans to come up near you again anytime soon with respect but i was assuming at some point i would be up in the westchester area and i would you know i was hoping that you could take me and we could go get some of your barbecue and see how it is i mean in all fairness like it's probably better for my health not to have massive quantities of meat covered in like wood carcinogens every week like (laughs) it's probably best ultimately that i'm not that you know having super easy access to it uh but it does that that was a very good time that i kind of miss it makes me sad but anyway so if that's the most of my problems i'd say i'm doing all right but it did make me sad that i couldn't get my delicious and hilariously expensive barbecue uh, after picking up my car uh, interestingly, I couldn't have them just do it in the driveway because I guess with these new fancy schmancy cars these days, they uh, need to do like recalibration of all the sensors that are behind the windshield. So I'm assuming that's why they insisted that I bring it down to their location and they took it for like three hours and did their thing. You so. never want them to do it in the driveway. Come on. I mean, what what, is why not? You get, your, get your car painted in a tent. Because it's not a controlled environment. <laughs> okay. Like, you want it to be indoors, first of all, so there's not like pollen and dust and bugs and wind and rain and who knows what else. And yeah, you want it to be like someplace with controlled lighting on a level surface with technicians who are in a comfortable place, not just randomly gorilla in, in, in a <laughs> parking lot. I always dislike that. Oh, my word. Okay. Uh, good to know. Uh, yeah, see, but the, the advantage of John never buying cars ever and buying unremarkable cars when he does is that you don't have radar cruise control, do you? You don't have any... My of- car is remarkable, Casey, first of all. And second mm-hmm. of all, no, I don't mm-hmm. have radar cl- cruise control. But I've also, uh, I, I guess I drive between the rocks. Uh, so I haven't lost a windshield that I can recall either. Yeah, yeah. This is also my opportunity to remind you, those of us who live in places with snow, which John includes me, sometimes, uh, those of us who live in places with snow, uh, please clean off the roof of your car when it snows. Because once, going back to mom and dad's when they lived in Connecticut, I was on the Jersey Turnpike and some lazy turd in front of me in a Lexus uh, sedan didn't clear all the snow and ice off of the roof of his car. And then a lot of it hurtled into my windshield and absolutely shattered the windshield of the Subaru uh, to the point that I probably shouldn't have continued to drive it. But I was so close to mom and dad's at that point, I was like, screw it. I'm just going to get home. Uh, So please, if you live in a place with winter, don't be a jerk. Clear off the roof of your car. Please clear the roof of your car. I don't care how tall your car is. If your car is that tall, 
either get a more reasonable car or get a ladder, but clear off the roof of your car for the love. Please, <laughs> I love please your do it for me. Get a ladder. <laughs> and this is a good defensive driving lesson. If you're driving behind a car that has snow on the roof, change lanes. If you're driving anywhere near a truck, get far out of the lane, away from it, in front of it, ideally, uh, or several lanes to the side as you pass it. Uh, and if you have an iPhone, put it in a case so when you drop it, it doesn't break. <laughs> <laughs> brutal. Absolutely brutal. But it makes it so much bigger. I'm loving the mini lifestyle so much this year. My case is so slim. I just put a link to my case. Like, honestly, someone, uh, we had a, a friend's visit and they had a phone I'm like, oh, how are you liking the big iPhone? Because I thought they had a 12 Pro. And they said, I don't have the big iPhone. I said, yeah, you have you have the big, like the Pro Max or whatever. You got the big Max one, right? And they said, no. So I, I grabbed their phone and then I took out my phone and held them up to each other. And lo and behold, we had the same size phone, but their case was huge. It just made the phone seem so much bigger. My very, very thin, extremely cheap leather case, which so far turned out to be a great purchase because it's holding up great. Uh, it's protecting my phone and it makes the phone barely bigger than it is. So it's so slim that I thought someone else's phone was the bigger size up just because the case was so chunky. <laughs> but see, I don't, the current generation of, like, of the, the medium-sized pros, I really don't like the way they feel. I don't like the polished steel bands and like, I don't know. Like they're, first of all, they're massive fingerprint magnets. I think they look terrible. You put a case on it so you don't, you don't have to worry about the steel band anymore. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess like that is the size phone I had for the last few years before this one and I lived with it, but... I love the mini so much, except the battery life does suck, and I do miss a 2X camera. But it, other than those things, <laughs> I do like it a lot. Like there, There's never a time when I'm using my mini and I think, my phone is too small. Like That, that ne- literally never, I never think that at all. And every time I handle like Tiff's Max, <laughs> like what is this? Like, it's an oh, iPad. Yeah, that, that, is, that, is, that is effectively an iPad. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, oh, yeah, but like, yeah. I, like and, and I know there's a middle setting that most people pick. And there's a reason why, yep. but but still, like the the mini feels so good, even though it has those flaws. Like, yeah, the battery life is not good, and especially now that it's not brand new. You know, I have it's almost a year old now, I'm, I'm, so the battery capacity is a little bit less, and I'm using it a little bit more because it's summer and I'm walking around a lot. But it is still such a great size that I'm willing to tolerate the the mediocre battery life, and and yeah, and the two X lens, I do miss that. I would love to have that back. But I love the way this phone feels so much that I'm willing to give that up. But yeah, we'll see this fall. Like the current rumors are that it's going to be the same sizes and probably roughly the same trade-offs. And if that's the case, uh, I might go back to the middle size. I don't know yet, but I won't. I won't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You tell him. You <laughs> this tell is him. like the worst, like most privileged thing. But still, yep. Like uh, I, I want my two X lens back. But man, I, I, I really like the size. If the Mini had all three lenses, which I'm sure would have looked preposterous, I'm sure it's physically difficult to fit it all. Like, I understand why it doesn't. But my goodness, if it had all the the standard issue camera setup, I probably would have gotten one this past year. But I am personally unwilling to give up anything in in turn. Well, I shouldn't say anything. I'm unwilling to give up one of the three available lenses because I feel like I do flip between all three quite a bit. And I know we did research about this when this was an issue, you know, a year ago almost, but uh, I, whether or not the facts bore it out, I feel like I use all three of the lenses enough that I, I would not sacrifice and get a mini. And now because, you know, Apple made this compromise device, not unlike the MacBook that I loved so much, nobody's buying them. Who'd have thunk it? And so now the rumors are, well, there's not going to be more of them, possibly ever. 
because nobody's buying them. Well, but and one theory I heard that I, that I think makes a lot of sense is that this past year, anybody who bought a new iPhone this year probably did not do so by first handling them in stores because you couldn't. That's and true. So, and like the Mini, you kind of have to feel it to, to get that kind of like, ooh, I want this kind of feeling because it's, you know, most people, the idea of going super small sounds risky or it's, they might they might think that's not what they want but once you handle it that's when you you realize like the you know whatever the benefits of it are and whether whether that does something for you like that's you, you know it when you feel it right and so in a year a year when most people never went into the stores uh you know if picking out a phone this year it does make sense why a lot of people would not have gone for it whereas it, current rumor again is that they're going to stick with these same three sizes for the next year and i think that that might we might see a different sales breakdown in the next year. That being said, I don't think it's going to take off like wildfire. I still don't think it's going to be the most popular phone and it's probably going to be, you know, a, a somewhat distant third like it is now you know, across the three sizes, but it's still really nice. And it's, they still sell a ton of them in absolute terms. You know, it's, it's not a big percentage, but they still are selling a ton of them. And, and so I do hope the size continues and, and continues to improve over time. Um, but but even I, after a year, I'm kind of thinking maybe I should go back this fall to the middle size just just to get that two X lens and the extra battery life back. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Robert Spivak writes, as a designer slash installer of smart home systems, I, I think I can contribute a few thoughts and some insight about what was mentioned about being without being self-promotional or a hidden agenda. Robert writes, I can't prove it, but I swear the problems with Apple HomeKit Wi-Fi devices is rooted in Apple's problems with Bonjour and multicast DNS. HomeKit is totally reliant on MDNS, which Apple uses, but almost nothing else does. Robert apparently has tested 15 different smart plugs from all kinds of manufacturers, and they've all had the symptom of mysteriously dropping off HomeKit Wi-Fi networks. Some in a few hours, some in a few days, some after a few months. But the common symptom is that they still have an IP address and can be pinged. But in, M in any MDNS lookup app, like the free discovery apps for iOS, macOS, etc., they have dropped out of the MDNS section. Uh, anecdotally, after swapping a lot of Wi-Fi gear and finally methodically upgrading and downgrading firmware and various access points and Wi-Fi routers, it appears that MDNS support is simply buggy or poorly implemented. When a stable combination of software firmware is found, the devices don't drop off anymore. I'm not sure I buy this, but I certainly have a lot less experience than Robert does. Yeah, I think, so this was in response to last week how I was talking, I was basically expressing my woes in trying to get smart home devices that were actually reliable, and in particular like a smart outlet behind an ice maker that's built in, it's kind of hard to access. And um, and I had said like I've never found anything like smart home-wise that worked 100% of the time, or that didn't occasionally require you to like go repair it with things or whatever. And a couple of pieces of follow-up. Number one, I had forgotten... <laughs> that I have a Lutron Cassetta set up at my house. <laughs> when they, when they, when they uh, you know, put in my front lights, like to, to meet some kind of safety building code, they had to be on some kind of timer so they would always automatically turn on at night. They did that with a Lutron Cassetta setup. And so I actually have that and I never think about it because it always just works. And there's, there are switches on the wall also to control the lights. So like, I just I kind of forgot that, that that's there, um, so that that's a good sign that maybe that's something I should look into. And and I heard from a bunch of other people that Lutron is is worth looking into, whether it's the Cassetta or the you know the higher end Radio Raw stuff. 
So I uh, I ordered the uh, the Lutron outlet. They have like they have one that's made for outdoor use that looks like it'll probably fit back there. So I have that on order. I will report back to uh, to let you know how that goes. Um, but uh, that's part one. And part two is, and I, I think I probably agree with this feedback. You know, anecdotally, it does seem like Wi-Fi is the problem. Whether it's like the actual radio layer or the association with the, you know, with the SSID, or whether it's IP mapping or DHCP problem, who knows what. But it does seem like Wi-Fi is the common thread here of like, if you avoid Wi-Fi and you go with something that uses its own radio stuff, uh, like, you know, the Zigbee or whatever, all, all that all that stuff, um, including Lutron stuff, anything that, that basically has to have some kind of little like radio base to make its own mesh network or whatever, that seem it seems like people have better experiences with that stuff than anything that connects directly to Wi-Fi itself. If that's the case, apparently this the new chip or uh, matter stuff heavily uses Thread as the radio protocol between devices when possible. And I think Thread is one of those things. That being said, I don't know anything about Thread yet. Yeah, but uh, it does seem like the industry also realized that Wi-Fi was a pretty big part of the problem. And so if we can get more reliable stuff that that uses like thread or other radio technologies that can somehow work together and not have like a closet full of hubs uh then great if that works great um but in the meantime i'm going to try the lutron stuff and see if that works and uh report back it's kind of weird that the computer spawned uh, stuff wi-fi and bluetooth uh, end up not being reliable enough for sort of utilitarian purposes whereas in, in both cases the less computery like the you know the dedicated radio stuff for the home things or the dedicated little usb rf dongles for logitech mice uh at least in my experience is much more reliable than bluetooth like sort of not purpose built because they're all kind of doing the same job but uh the ones that you know the the logitech thing is not built to be a general purpose wireless networking protocol it's made for mice and keyboards so they can really concentrate on that one use case. And uh, in my experience, they nail it. The range is amazing. The reliability is great. Um, you know, I, I think it's way better than any Bluetooth I've ever used. And then in the home stuff, what's wrong with Wi-Fi? All our other devices are on Wi-Fi. Everything's fine. But if you think about it, like Wi-Fi is something that even when it's in, you know, in a house and it's very reliable, we're used to the idea that a device could fall off of Wi-Fi and then have to get back on it, right? There's just this is something that happens, right? Even if just your device is restarted, like it goes off of Wi-Fi, then it gets back on and it reconnects. And if you get a new device, you have to tell it about your network and your password and you know the, the right SSID. And there's all those sort of steps that involve getting on your network. If someone comes and visits your house, which network should they go on? What's the password? You know, all, all this other stuff, the different security levels. Oh, this device supports five gigahertz. This one supports 2.4. Like a Wi-Fi network is flexible and supports all our devices, but everything I've just described, I think anyone who's had Wi-Fi for a long time has experienced the sort of busy work, management, maintenance of a Wi-Fi network. And no one wants to have any kind of management or maintenance of their light switches. Like you just just don't want to e literally ever have to do anything, or for that matter, the thermostat, right? Or anything like that. Like when you're talking about your Nest thermostat and how you dislike and everything, I was thinking about my thermostat, which... I don't even, honestly, I don't know if it was here when we moved in or if we got it with when we replaced the, the furnace in the basement. But either way, I've literally never thought about it. I don't think I've ever even changed the batteries. And I think it just takes like a, a double A, like one double A <laughs> battery, right? <laughs> like just the, there is a zero tolerance for any kind of maintenance work. And 
Wi-Fi just isn't like that. As, as great as it is, like I think, you know, I don't really think about my Wi-Fi, but we just had some friends over and I had to tell them which SSID to connect to and what the password was, right? And when I do get new devices, like even just the new Apple TV, I got to, you know, it asked me which network to connect to or if it doesn't grab the network info from something else or whenever I get a new TiVo when I used to get those back in the day. There is some amount of futzing to do. Uh, but with, you know, with appliance stuff, you just want it to always work. So I don't know how this is going to sort itself out, but the depressing history of Bluetooth does not make me optimistic about the idea of any of these computer technologies ever getting to the point where they're as reliable as the dedicated ones. So I also don't know anything about Thread, but I really hope Thread is a more purpose-built networking protocol that concentrates on a smart home use case and doesn't care about, you know, computer stuff. Well, I think also part of it is like the the computer standards, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, they are massively more complicated and always changing. Like when Wi-Fi was first coming around and, you know, like around like, you know, 2000, 2010, like, you know, in that range, when it was first getting, you know, ubiquitous, it was a lot more primitive than it is now. And it's also a lot simpler than it is now. You know, think about, as you know, you mentioned 2.4 gigahertz versus 5 gigahertz support. The way that's implemented in at the Wi-Fi layer is everything broadcasts to SSIDs, you know, one for each one, and devices have to figure that out, and they don't always do that right. Now we have, in common usage, multi-point Wi-Fi networks, where you're broadcasting from multiple SSIDs, from multiple, you know, little routers or boosters around your house, and so you have to, like, devices have to manage that and, you know, not see them as... 19 separate SSIDs and be able to roam if it's a portable device between them. And, and like everything is so much more complicated now than when Wi-Fi was first designed and, and was first supported. So it's kind of no wonder that some kind of like $4 Wi-Fi chip in, in a smart home outlet that has to sell for 10 bucks to be competitive might be kind of crappy at dealing with that in practice or might be a little bit buggy or a little bit off or you know just like not not quite very good or reliable at that. And so something like Thread, you know, it, if you think about the needs of a smart home networking solution versus anything else, it's so different than computer-based things that, that are mainly focused on things like data transfer rates and, you know, stuff like that. Like, smart home stuff needs to be almost no bandwidth. Like, you need, you need very little data transfer, with, except maybe, like, cameras. But otherwise, like, you know, most stuff, you don't need very much bandwidth. And what you do need is reliability range and enough security to keep people out who ha- who like wouldn't be authorized but not so much security that you're like transmitting state secrets you know within your house to, to tell your light switch that it's on or not um so like it the, the needs are just so totally different and it makes sense why in practice you know the actual hardware that you can get for smart home devices might be universally 80% good but impossible to make 100% good you know without charging enough that nobody would buy it yeah all i want to say is that lutron caseta in my limited experience it's only lasted a couple months but it is excellent it's basically bulletproof and it generally speaking you can have a physical switch as well as you know control via your phone or home kit or what have you which to me i think and we've brought this video up several times but uh, a friend of the show quinn i think nailed it on the head you know you want physical controls in addition to shouting into the air when you have one or the other it's really not the best but when you can hit a freaking button in order to turn the lights on and off you want to have that as a backup always no matter what so 
Moving right along, with regard to HSTS, which may or may not be a list, uh, Jacob writes, I don't think Safari's automatic HTTPS upgrade has much to do with HSTS because Safari has supported that header in the preload list for several years. My guess is that it works similar to DuckDuckGo's Smarter Encryption. We'll put a link in the show notes. And here's a quote. At the center of DuckDuckGo's Smarter Encryption is a large list of websites that we know have encrypted or HTTPS versions of their websites. Which we use to ensure that you can only interact with, with that, that you only interact with these encrypted versions. We automatically generate this list by continually crawling the web. Yeah, so the one is from Apple over which one of those things it is, but yeah, having a list that Apple maintains in addition to supporting HSTS sounds plausible. Moving right along, uh, Scott Sutton writes, I just can't wait until Apple allows the web page to change the color of my physical iMac. It's just so jarring <laughs> to be looking at that web page and see that non-color coordinated keyboard hovering at the edge of my vision. I put this in here because it was a funny joke, but honestly, like, first of all, people with PCs probably already do this with all their RGB stuff, right? You know, it's not <laughs> it's not too far to think that you know, people are certainly changing the color of their keyboard based on the game they're playing or whatever. Changing the color of your computer based on where you're going is definitely a thing that I can imagine Apple doing someday, especially as the technology, you know, becomes possible and, you know, maybe less tacky. Um, but it's also, it's trying to, you know, slam the Safari, the new Safari UI where they're changing the the Safari Chrome to match the website in some sort of, I think, mostly misguided attempt to make the website bleed into the application you're using to render it. And I'm not sure how much value there is in that. Like, if you like the way it looks, maybe, but there's so much variability, I really don't want to give web pages that much control over my UI. I think we talked about this in the past couple of weeks. So just like the, it, it's a, it's a, a matter of degree. You know, Apple, when Apple allows you to allow your desktop background to tint your windows or to show through your menu bar, right, or to allow the time of day to influence whether your computer is light mode or dark mode, I would say even the light mode, dark mode things, these are in general more subtle, like in, in terms of how much influence does content you you don't control have over your interface. For the light and dark mode, you would say, that's not subtle. That's a total flipping of the UI. But you know, it's just two things. It's light mode and dark mode that Apple and presumably app developers have tailored to look okay. The light mode looks okay and the dark mode looks okay. It's not arbitrary control over your user interface by random people's web pages or even random people's individual apps. And even the desktop background, which of course you control, it just subtly hints the, the color of things and shows through the menu bar a little bit. I would say the menu bar goes a little bit too far, right? But Safari 15 is, is along that spectrum. It's just way over at the other edge where you're really giving, you know, almost total arbitrary control of what color the UI is. And then Safari mightily tries to lay out all of its text and controls on top of whatever color was dictated by the web page because they do want to make the web page, like the background, blend into the UI. So you can't have the UI just be influenced by green. It has to literally be the same green for this effect they're going for. And I just don't think it's a great idea. Again, you can turn off all these features. You can turn off the window tinting. You can't, I think you can't turn off the menu bar, which really annoys me, although there's that boring old menu bar app that you can use to hack around it. Uh, you don't need to use dark mode if you don't want to, right? You can turn off th this feature in Safari. Uh, but I just, these are, what we're talking about are the defaults. I'm pretty sure window tinting is the default. This is the problem with always upgrading your Mac. I don't actually know what the defaults are anymore because I don't do Mac OS 10 reviews, but I think window tinting might be the default. It seems like so far the Safari thing that we're complaining about is the default. Um, but yeah, along this, not too much farther along this spectrum is changing the physical color of your computer if it was possible, because 
hey, why not? Like for the same reason that you have a color coordinated desktop background and keyboard and trackpad, like it looks nice. I can imagine if you had all those peripherals be chameleon-like, the exact same philosophy that says if the website is green, Safari's Chrome should be green, should also make your entire Mac green. Like it's just, it's along that path, just a little bit farther down and not actually not that much farther down. I probably wouldn't be in favor of it. What about those TVs that have like the edge LEDs that can change color based on the, the content that's being shown on the TV screen? Yep. Hey, I like those, those prove to be a great idea. Why doesn't Apple uh, just do that? Just have every web page. And, and of course, as you scroll, it would scroll with it. You know, the whole thing would animate your whole wall. Um, you know, why, why, it, why don't you just get the entire computer out of the way? Yeah, like theming is a thing. Like I remember doing this in the classic macOS days of like have, picking a kaleidoscope theme and a desktop background and an icon set that, that has a look, whether that look is kind of a dark mode or like everything is lime green or the teal, and the, uh, you know, iMac, the, you know, bluish iMac days, right? There is something to that aesthetic. I don't like I don't begrudge people theming and I think all the colored iMacs are a great idea. It's the connection between something you don't control, like a web page, and, and your stuff. Like, if it feels like someone reaching across the internet and changing, like, the lighting in your room or the color of your rug. And that, I, that connection is the problem. Not, the problem is not having a theme or having all your peripherals match. I think all that is great. I just feel like it needs to be under the user's control more than allowing, again, <laughs> arbitrary web pages, which is the biggest, the biggest canvas of the world to invade your your you know your computing environment screw with it like because you control your desktop background right and you can turn all these features on and off i suppose but i just think that connection is not the best uh the best strategy we'll see we'll see if uh, apple sticks to it in terms of the defaults do either of you have the beta on your phones yet i have the beta on a non-carry phone and which i've only used very briefly to be honest with you but my initial impressions were that i like safari on the phone I also have it on my, not carry iPad, but my day-to-day iPad. And um, I I actually don't mind the color. It, it is jarring, but I don't mind it. You know, I think I would get used to it. However, I would like to echo the entirety of the internet who has been saying that the tabs are garbage because they are straight garbage on, on iPad. On, on iPhone, I'm fine with it. On iPad, no good. And I haven't run... The Mac beta yet, but I have a feeling I would uh, that I would feel the exact same way as the iPad. So when you put it on your carry phone, whenever that happens, let's revisit how much you like Safari on the phone. <laughs> and that's fair. That's fair. Again, I really haven't used it very much. It was a few minutes here and there, and the initial impression impressions were very, very good. But I, I will be the first to tell you that you might be exactly right, that if I put it on a phone that I'm using more than a few minutes a day, it might drive me absolutely bananas. You know what's the worst thing about it to me? It like now that I've, I I know I've complained about it a lot, but just like a few a few new observations. <laughs> this is the new Safari on the phone. First of all, it seems like the touch targets are smaller now for like certain toolbar elements for all over the U.S. But um, but especially in Safari, like the 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 tug zone for that dot 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 menu, like I feel like I'm missing it sometimes, and a lot of the a lot of the other controls like since they spaced it more away from edges of things or like bars, it seems like you actually have less vertical space on some of the controls. So I keep just missing the controls. And then also because it does this ridiculous thing where it has the bar on the bottom and then you tap it and then it zooms up to the top so that you can edit the text. The location that you have to tap to edit the text 
moves around the screen all the time. And I'm finding it's breaking muscle memory constantly because I keep I keep like tapping up top to edit the the URL or to you know do do something on the page before the bar is there or something. And I realize oh it's at the bottom. I gotta go to go to the bottom. Tap oh now it's zoomed up to the top. Woo! And you gotta like go find it. And like I'm finding it's just, it's breaking tons of muscle memory because Safari on iPhone, you know it's it has worked similarly for so long like like in the way it was before this it was it was mostly unchanged for so long that there's tons of like just automatic muscle memory from being an iphone user that you don't necessarily realize will be destroyed when making a a radically new ui like this but that to me is the biggest point of friction is that i don't know where to tap and i don't know where to look for a certain control for for longer now i have to like refigure it all out and I've had it on my main phone now for about a week and I still, I'm still not used to it. Like I, I, I still think it's terrible, but I'm thinking like, Hey, maybe as I get, as I use it more, maybe I'll get used to it. Nope. A weekend hasn't happened yet. I'll keep you posted, but it's, I'm finding it incredibly cumbersome and, and even simple stuff like, like having to do two taps for a reload. One of the most common things I do in Safari is I check pages on my servers that show me statuses of things or show me things I have to go through, like new ad buys I gotta have to approve or something like that. And my workflow for those pages is I go to those tabs and I hit refresh to see what's new. And so I realize now like how often I I need to hit refresh in Safari on mobile. <laughs> it turns out it's a lot more than I would have guessed if you would have just asked me a few months ago. And I have to just like I have to just re I guess redo those pages to reload themselves with with JavaScript or something. Cause you're I, not using pull to refresh on those pages? Does that work? We talked about it on the show. Yeah. Hang on. Oh, I just. <laughs> I mean, if you're at the top of the on. page, right? So I just hit the. Bu- I just hit the the tab square button to pull up my list of tabs, and wait, where the hell am I? Did I break it? Oh, I broke it. I can't get to my list of tabs anymore. Now it just brings up a new page. Anyway, <laughs> somehow when I can get back to my list of tabs, I, uh, <laughs> I, I like scrolled up. Now I guess there's some kind of gesture where. A side swipe on your tab, I guess, closes it. So I scrolled up a little bit off and accidentally closed a tab, and I don't know which one it is, and I can't get it back. <laughs> so great. This is a lot cool. of fun. I love Safari. Just shake your phone. Shake the undo. Uh, let me see. <laughs> Shaking. That's always my, my desperation is like, I only have one move left, and it's to shake my phone and hope desperately that whoever made this app is stuck in like 2009 and, and made Shake to Undo work to restore a tab. Yeah, Shake to Undo uh, didn't work, first of all. And yeah, I don't, I, I always, whenever I have to shake my phone to undo, I kind of like do it under the table. Like I, I look around, like I, I don't want anybody to see me doing this. <laughs> you can, you can do, there's a gesture for it now too, right? Isn't it like three finger, three finger double tap or something? Chat room will have it in a second. Oh, there's some that. There's some gesture. For oh yeah, as well. yeah. Because like I just I I always feel like I look like such a fool doing this. It's satisfying though. You're like you're punishing the phone for making a mistake. Bad phone. <laughs> Bring that text back. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so if my Safari ever ever works again, I'll keep you posted. But it's I literally can't do anything now. It's totally broken. Uh, so I just installed the the Safari technology preview on my iMac at the suggestion of somebody in the chat who has already scrolled off the screen. So I apologize. Uh, this fucking sucks. I hate this. Shit. <laughs> it's the, the Safari <laughs> technology preview, I think, is slightly different than actual Monterey in a few areas, but in general, yeah, that's the UI. I have it installed as well. The good thing about Safari technology preview is that it, you can run it alongside regular Safari, and they have separate worlds of everything. 
as far as I can tell. At least they have separate state because when I was trying to test like reload button stuff or whatever, every time, you know, I would quit and relaunch Safari, I have it configured to restore all of my windows. And that's just too many, too many damn windows to be closing and opening. <laughs> but Safari technology preview, I just had one window. And so quit, launch, quit, launch. Um, yeah, if, you, if that's for everyone, we should put a link in the show notes. If you want to try out the new terrible Safari on your Mac, but don't want to try Monterey, which I think is the wise thing to do, uh, Safari technology preview that will run on your whatever the hell OS we're on now. Uh, I was going to say Catalina, but that's not right, is it? Big Sur. Big Sur. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it. I think I'm not sure how far back it'll run, but anyway, I'm running it on Big Sur. Um, check out Purple Safari; it's cool. Is it? I mean, the fa- Purple Safari is cool. This Normally, new UI, is, <laughs> yeah. this new this new UI is not cool. Oh, I hope they don't ship this. I'm getting scared. I'm getting scared. They're going to. Yeah. <laughs> at least you know. At least Gruber complained in in large you know organized fashion. So like they tend to listen to him pretty well, especially with Safari UI stuff. So hopefully, maybe like it's getting to the right ears or eyes. But I still, I still think that every change I see is like all it needs is some minor tweaks to address the biggest complaints, and it'll be great, right, everybody? Like we already put the preference <laughs> in for you to turn off the window tinting, so no one can complain about that. Which I agree with them. Like you put a pre- you put a pref in the GUI to turn it off. Good thumbs up. I'm that's good. But the tabs, no preference is getting rid of those, right? And these like these minor tweaks are like, here's a reload button. Now the share button can be in the toolbar. Everything's fixed now, right? It's like, no, you're not getting it. The, the, the whole, you like, it's like when, if yeah. someone shows you something. They're the rubber gaskets of Safari UI problems. Yeah, it's like when someone shows you something to critique or something and they're expecting you to give them like, well, you know, maybe change this small thing or that small thing. And what you really want to say is start over. <laughs> like not, nothing about this is good your fundamental idea is bad we've added a protective membrane under the keys <sighs> yeah it's, it's similar to that but it's the ui version like yeah <laughs> like to their credit like i understand what they're going for and there is a a measurable benefit in terms of uh vertical screen real estate but it's just like i i don't think i've seen a single review that has not said the same exact thing which is like here are the benefits here are the drawbacks they're out of balance, right? Like people aren't being mean to it. Just be like, oh, you're bad and this is bad and you should never try anything. It's, it's like, new. Oh my good. God, it's new. Like you tried it. Yeah. And th- there is some part of that because here's what I think. I think if we get stuck with this UI, we will eventually eventually begrudgingly become accustomed to it. Uh, and there is a little bit of that. I'm trying a new thing and it ends different. Mark uh, mentioned the, the muscle memory for the phone version. The Mac version is all weird, but I feel like we've had enough time with it now and enough people have really just sat down and, and analyzed and said, it's not like it's not all awful, but the trade-offs don't work, right? There we get benefit, and then we have drawbacks, and the drawbacks are just so much bigger, and that's a sign of a unsuccessful experiment, I think. So I really hope they try something different eventually. But I, I totally feel like they're going to ship this. Well, and, and I feel like like I, I think uh, one of my favorite parts of Gruber's uh, critique of the Safari design is this actually better, or did they just redesign it to just be different? And and I get that feeling with a lot of um, modern Apple redesign stuff that, you know, sometimes it is better, but it seems like the design team wants to move forward, whatever that means, so badly that they they want to redesign stuff like on a certain interval, even if A, it doesn't necessarily need it, and or B, what they come up with might not necessarily actually be better. It might just be different. Like I feel like you know, designers, you know, programmers. You know, we we're the same way. You know, we don't like the old, and we always try to like justify rewriting something we've done before because we want to do it in a new cool way using some new API or new programming technique or whatever. 
and designers i think i think have have a similar problem of like they they want to do something new because they get tired of the old and that's it's always fun to redesign something and and try to really radically change it and what if we totally rethought you know xyz boring thing that we haven't touched in a while it's very appealing i i get the appeal to do that um but so often, just as programmers, oftentimes when we rewrite things or refactor things, oftentimes we make them worse or we forget to fix all the bugs that we forgot over the last 10 years in the new version. And so the new version actually ends up being buggier and possibly not worth it to the customer or the company. Um, I, I feel like redesigns have similar problems where like there's this push that, and you want to redesign this as the designer and you think I'm going to make my mark on this project or on this product. I'm going to, I'm going to really, you know, rethink the way browsers look or whatever. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that gives you really great results, but not every time. It's very important for an organization to be able to tell the difference and, and to, to catch things like this before they ship. If it's not actually better. And in this case, uh, you know, it hasn't shipped yet, technically. Like, you know, we, these are still betas. Um, but I hope that Apple <laughs> gets it right in, in their decision-making here that, like, these redesigns of Safari, while they are different, and while they have some good ideas, both the desktop and iPhone versions fail in pretty big ways as designs. And I don't think they're better and I don't, I don't know anyone who does, who doesn't work at Apple. <laughs> Even people who work there, I think many of them don't think so either. Like, I don't know how you could put this out there and see the reaction that the world has given and think, all right, we're good, let's ship it in the fall. So I, I, I hope they're, they're hearing us at deeper levels than just, we'll add a reload button and it's fixed, right? <laughs> Finally, this has been hanging out in the... Uh follow-up section for, I feel like, two months or something like that, even though it's probably less than that. Uh, so Daniel Yount writes, hey, what's going on here? And there's a video of the login screen, and apparently Daniel's um, like avatar for his Mac is his Memoji, and the eyeballs on his Memoji are following his mouse cursor, like Super Mario style in Super Mario World. Oh, like from the title screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This has been it's X eyes guys or the uh, the eyes in the menu bar on the Mac, but X eyes probably predates it. Anyway, um, this was in here for so long just because I I initially couldn't tell is this just a joke video of like hey wouldn't it be cool if they added this feature? And then once I got Monterey on a Mac, I every time I was on it I mostly forgot to do this. But I was like, how do you set your emoji as your avatar? I didn't quite know how to do it, or I, mostly I just thought of it when I wasn't on that computer and it was rebooted into you know Big Sur or something like that. But finally, I saw someone discussing online how to set your avatar to your Memoji in Monterey. So once I saw that, I'm like, this must be real then. Uh, because you can apparently set use your Memoji as your avatar. And then once you do that, it seems plausible that on the login screen, if you move the cursor around, the eyes of your little 3D Memoji will follow your cursor. Um, that is a cool feature, even though I think Memoji are, we've talked about this before, are a great example of Apple's corporate aesthetic taking precedence over the literal size shape and look of people's faces because memoji are standardized in a way that human beings are not and apple essentially doesn't let you make a memoji that actually looks like yourself if you happen to not have the skull shape that apple has decided is the appropriate skull shape for humans as compared to nintendo with their Miis, 
where you can absolutely make any grotesquerie that matches you exactly. <laughs> and that's why people who are good making at making me's can make me's where someone looks at it and said, oh, yep, that's Uncle Tom, that's Grandpa, that's Susie, right? You recognize the people because you have enough flexibility to make something that does not fit with the Nintendo aesthetic or whatever. And whereas everybody in Momoji looks like this just cherubic, sphere-faced, you know, even Apple, when they did their, they did like little uh, Momoji for all like the executive team or whatever. And like Phil Schiller looks nothing like Phil Schiller. Like the Phil Schiller Memoji, presumably done by the best the best minds, the best Memoji experts inside Apple. You cannot make a Memoji, apparently, that looks like Phil Schiller because his, his head just isn't shaped like that. Um, and anyway, sorry to go on the Memoji rant, but if, if you happen to like that, or if you just want to be an idealized cartoon version of yourself that doesn't actually look like you, check out Memoji and then your eyes can follow the cursor, maybe. <laughs> can, can I Please. just, if you'll permit me, I don't want to complain this whole episode, but is it is it just me? Or does it seem like Apple likes Memoji a lot more than everyone else does? I think people like it a lot. I see a lot of, of Memoji usage among non-nerd people. Like, I mean, even before that, remember Bitmoji? Like, there's, there's been a lot of things online. Bitmoji is huge. And, but even that, so I feel like Memoji, I think it was a really cool, fun thing. And I think it was a fad for a short time. And I think that time has passed. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everyone's using no. it when because when people uh, when people pick that or make their emoji and use it as their avatar, like all of us, once you find an avatar that you are okay with, you just tend to leave it there. And I think that like you're right that people aren't just like super excited about it, but it's like, oh, that's my avatar. I know people who have Bitmoji avatar right now, and they've had them for years. Like I think that is fulfilling its role of give me a tool to make an avatar that I'm comfortable with to present to the world. And some people aren't comfortable with doing an actual photo of themselves. They want something more stylized. And so Moji provides that. And I think Moji, like, it's well implemented. The feature is well implemented. It has a lot of cool things to it. It's nicely modeled. You can do the whole tongue wagging, sticking out things. It's just fundamentally flawed as a way to capture people's likenesses, which if that's not what you want, if you don't want to capture your likeness, then fine. But if you want to capture your likenesses, it's not the tool for you. Hmm. Yeah, I know a handful of people, nerdy and non-nerdy, that have Memoji as their, like, iMessage avatar uh, picture, whatever. And the funniest thing is, I, I can't remember who it is other than my dad, but there's a handful of people in my life that are all, you know, older white dudes. And I swear I swear to you, every single one of those Memojis looks absolutely identical. Like, oh, it's another old white guy. There you go. <laughs> They're exactly <laughs> the same. To John's point, exactly the same, every single one of them. All right, uh, John, tell us. I know we have all been waiting with bated breath. What's going on with your mouse pad and your mouse? We just had a few questions and theories from people uh, after last show that I wanted to uh, close the loop on. Uh, to recall, it was uh, my mouse pad where the right side of it uh, was not as good for tracking as far as my optical mouse was concerned as the left side of it. It's not really half and half. It's actually like a bad, a bad area that's more or less towards the right side. So uh, one uh, theory people had was, Maybe it's not the mouse pad. Maybe it's the cable because remember, I, my mouse is plugged in. And maybe when they were saying, maybe when you go to the right side of the mouse pad, your cable bends in, in a certain way. And maybe you have like a, you know, a break or a flaw in, inside the conductor. And when you do that, it causes interference or, you know, it, it loses continuity for a short period of time. Something like that. So maybe it's your cable. Uh, check that. And nope, uh, that's not it. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter where the cable is. I can move the cable around. I can wiggle it. It doesn't have any effect. It's only that spot in the mouse pad. The next theory was maybe it's not the mouse pad. Maybe it's the 
desk surface or, you know, uh, you know, um, something else emanating from the earth <laughs> underneath where it is. Uh, to test that one, I just removed the mouse pad from where it is and I put it on an entirely different place on the desk and I rotated it, you know, 90 degrees various times and used the mouse on it. And the bad spot is really on the mouse pad. Wherever that bad spot is, no matter what surface I put it on, no matter how I rotate the mouse pad, uh, you can track the bad spot and the mouse has a little bit of trouble tracking on that spot. I did mean to this weekend cut myself a new mouse pad from one of my, you know, sheets of mouse pad material to eliminate this problem, <laughs> but I got distracted at some point and didn't actually do that. So I'm still using the bad mouse pad, but on my to-do list is to cut a new mouse pad for myself. That's an amazing to-do list. <laughs> it, it's something. It is something. <laughs> uh, we had a question from Jason Abreu. And he writes, my name is Jason and I'm soon to be married to my fiance in the September of this year, which might have even been 2020 for all I know. But nevertheless, no, I think we beat it. I think we got it. I think September means uh, this fall. So we may actually be reading <laughs> reading feedback in a timely manner. Squeaking it in at the last second. All right. I think that moving in and creating our own family is an opportunity to put in place some solid and safe process for us to handle our shared digital data. I was wondering if you could give me some advice on how you manage your family's digital life and documents. I'm concerned with digital backups of things like important receipts, which may be needed later for warranty purposes, insurance policy documents, fun stuff like that. I'm also thinking of things like shared bank statements or other types of financial documents. As for photos, I currently use Google Photos due to the fact that it's web-based and I refuse to give Apple money for subpar online photo storage. My people. Ideally, I <laughs> prefer an online self-managed It's pretty solution. good. It's not subpar. It's pretty good. I actually, I have an aside about this. I'll try to remember to talk about it after we get to this, <laughs> this topic. But uh, no, you're going to maybe like it. But anyway, oh, coming no. back to what Jason wrote. Uh, ideally, I prefer an offline self-managed solution, but I'm leaning more and more toward an online solution so I don't have to worry about physically maintaining hard drives. My concern with an online solution is if the service will be around five years from now and our documents actually stored in an encrypted, secure manner. I actually don't have too much to say about this because there's not a lot of documents that I consider to be precious. That being said, things like uh, scans of our passports, our driver's licenses, birth certificate, um, our wills. So, you know, for wills and things of that nature, we put them in one password. That's not to say that that's the best or most perfect place, but that's what I do and it seems to work. And one of the nice things about 1Password for Families, they're not a sponsor right now, and I don't remember if they've been in a long time, but uh, one of the nice things about 1Password for, for Families is that you can create different vaults. And so like I have a vault, Aaron has a vault, and then my business stuff is in its own vault. And then I also have like a vault dedicated mostly to travel documents like passports and birth certificates and, and driver's licenses and, and things like that. But also things like, you know, Aaron and I each have our own will. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. But for me, I like putting that stuff in one password because it's super, I'm super selective about what ends up in there. And if it's in one password, it's got to be really freaking important. And so that's what I do for almost anything else that I don't consider is to be near as important or as critical. I just have it on my Synology sitting there in a particular folder where I can find that sort of thing easily if necessary, but uh, it's not like super encrypted or anything like that. That's what I do. Marco, I have a feeling that you also don't have too much to say about this famous last word. So let's start with you and then then finish with John. Yeah. By the way, some real-time follow-up. We had one password sponsor our show less than one month ago. <laughs> Wasn't that recently? God, I'm such a jerk. It was June oh, I'm 10th. the worst. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I love one. I re hand to God, I really do love one password. It is one of my favorite pieces of software on any of my devices. And I would say that 
partially because I feel guilty, but I also am saying that because I really honestly believe it. It is really truly that good. Yeah, and I'm I'm also a one password user. Um, I know John's not, but that's cool. It, you know, we, you get two of the three of us. It's pretty good. Is it cool? <laughs> I don't know if it's cool. It's 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 acceptable, but I don't know if it's cool. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah I use one password. I, I we also have the family account so that Tiff and I can have the shared vault between the two yep, of us yep, for yep. like any kind of shared credentials or mm-hmm. like any of like we put any of our kids' credentials for his accounts. We put those in the shared vault so that Tiff and I can both have access you know if we if he's like hey i gotta log into minecraft on my ipad or whatever like we both whichever parent is around can can help with that request um so that's that's very good um i too use it for very sensitive documents things like passports ids and stuff like that but for the most part like the you know the big important stuff like wills and things like that those are just like at lawyers offices and i like i have scans of them but i and and they're like we have like one of those fireproof boxes like it's not really it's not a safe but it's like a fire it's a fire resistant box and like we have hard copies of all like that kind of stuff in that box so to me like you know anything like that you know things that things that are of the nature of like if i am incapacitated or dead what do what does my family or other people need from me for that that i think is still better off living in the physical world as much as possible because the digital world is so much harder for people to get into in that in that kind of uh, scenario actually let me let me let me jump in right there because i i would like to echo what you just said a few years ago i don't remember what the catalyst moment was for this but i sat down and i wrote out i call it my just in case document and then the idea of this is if if I were to just drop dead spontaneously, like what is the bare minimum amount of information that Aaron needs to know about things that Aaron doesn't typically, you know, manage? What is the bare minimum she needs to know in order to continue her life and the kids' lives and continue paying bills and things of that nature? And, you know, one of the big things on that document is sign into one password. That's where all my junk is. But yeah. but nevertheless, a lot of that is like, here's where here's who carries our insurance. Here's where our bank account. Well, she knows some of this stuff. But what if Aaron dies too? Like then my parents or somebody could come in and like recreate our lives. And uh, and not only does that document exist, which I think is an extremely smart thing for any family to do. But uh, additionally, we ha- I have a paper copy in our fireproof quote unquote safe, which like you said, isn't really a safe. It's more of just a fireproof box. But I I would like to strongly echo what you said about that. Having some sort of document with the bare minimum in order to get, you know, your children or your or your spouse or whatever able to continue to live, you I really, really encourage you to put that physically somewhere in addition to like electronically somewhere. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, you know, that's, you know, legacy planning is a whole different thing of like, how do you give people's, you know, your passwords to stuff that that is online. And, you know, that's a whole thing. But anyway, for the purposes of other documents, I'm not very organized, because frankly, I don't keep many documents. Um, I do have a paperless lifestyle whenever possible uh, for, you know, stuff like, you know, bills and crap like that, you know, receipts, things like that. Um, And my strategy for that is I have a sheet fed scanner, um, back in uh, the you know my regular life, I have a Fujitsu ScanSnap, which I love. Um, here in my fake life, I have a Raven scanner, which is okay. Uh, I, it's really that's a whole separate topic. <laughs> the Raven scanner is basically an Android tablet glued inside of a scanner. Oh, cool! It's very strange. Like my scanner has software updates, and where like you know I'll have to like you know I'll open it up one day to try to scan my electric bill or whatever. And 
it'll be like, so we need a software update. Uh, you know, tap here, do it. And you tap and it has like the like the little like circle, like finger cursor when you tap that Android tablets can have. And then it has to do like a software update. It has to reboot itself like an Android tablet does. It Like it's very, it's, once you realize that it's just an Android tablet, it's it become it makes a lot more sense, but the way it works is so bizarre as a scanner to work that way, <laughs> and yeah, it, this whole this world of like smart devices that are made you know with commodity stuff kind of it, it has its downsides, and the downside of this is that it's basically a very very slow sluggish Android tablet that's <laughs> powering this not cheap scanner that otherwise scans pretty well. But it's a very weird and awkward and sometimes very slow user experience. Um, but anyway, so I, I honestly, I, I don't know if I would recommend this product. I use it, uh, but this is not an endorsement or a condemnation, I guess. Uh, it's, I, have a, I, I feel ambivalent towards my Raven scanner. Anyway, um, so <laughs> paperless lifestyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, if this scanner was you know stolen or, or fell into the bay tomorrow... I would replace it with a scan snap with a Fujitsu scan snap again. Anyway, uh, paperless. So I basically scan everything to OCR PDFs so that they are searchable by text, but I dump them into one giant folder. The files are just named by date that I scan them. So it's just one giant chronological shoebox of everything that I've ever scanned because in practice, I hardly ever need to go back and look at these things. So I've I've tried over the years different organizational strategies for that, and I've never really found it worthwhile to actually like categorize them into file folders and everything else. Like you know, here's all the electric bills, here's all of the insurance renewals. Like I, I've never found that level of organization worth it or necessary for my scanned documents. Um, anything that is unscanned, that is just that that originates as an electronic document um things like email receipts i tend to just keep those in my email my email itself is a giant document store and it's all you know downloaded locally and and searchable and so any kind of you know important document or confirmation or information i need uh probably came through an email at some point and so oftentimes, that's how I dig things up, is I search through my email for like, like this one email I got 15 years ago or 10 years ago that has this attached PDF that has this receipt on it or something. Um, for other types of data, like a lot of times this stuff just lives in its originating web service, and that's mostly fine. Like, I buy a lot of stuff on Amazon. Yeah, I know. I buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, and I can search my past orders on Amazon. And so that, to me, is another place where like that's a huge searchable history of the type of you know data or document that is my purchase history so if i need to know when did i buy that hard drive that just died is it still under warranty first thing i'll do is i'll look at amazon history to see when i bought it and then i'll know okay did i buy it within the warranty period or not um so stuff like that like i i I tend to have a lot of stuff in 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 those few different silos like where where it originated and i tend to not move stuff out of those very often like into new silos like if it originates in a silo that i have ongoing access to i tend to leave it there um, because that's it's just easier and and as long as i can trust it's going to be there but like i'm pretty sure i'm going to keep buying stuff from amazon in the future i'm pretty sure i'm going to keep having email in the future you know stuff like so like it's kind of it's that's kind of inherently long-term reliable um as for other types of documents you know my code and everything that's all like in source control and everything but that's a whole different thing um but 
you know, other like, you know, other types of like, you know, quote documents that would go like in your documents folder, things like spreadsheets, word processing documents that I just keep in the documents folder or in, you know, a very small number of subfolders of that. Like every year I have a folder for my taxes for that year. So it's like taxes 2021 is the current one and it lives on my desktop for the whole year. And then once my taxes are filed for the year, I move it into the documents folder. <laughs> and it's, so I have you know taxes 2008, taxes 2009, like all my tax documents and everything needed to support my tax documents. Like that's that goes in that year's storage and that's it. Other than stuff like that, I don't have a large number of these things. You know, I have a few spreadsheets that I kind of update on an ongoing basis. Those live in the documents folder or I think on iCloud maybe. I, that, that line is kind of blurred recently. Um, I have a few things I keep in Dropbox so I have easy access to them no matter what computer I'm on. Uh, but otherwise, like, I, I don't really have a lot of organization or strategy to most of this. Most stuff either lives in one of those giant silos that I kind of have ongoing access to or it is kind of disorganized in my documents folder somewhere because I don't have enough documents, nor do I access them frequently enough for that mess of a system to be a problem. So, John, what's the right way? I mean, Marco definitely does the most of this stuff of the three of us. Like He's talked about his scan snap and stuff like that, and neither one of us do anything like that. But hearing Marco talk about it, I think my system is very similar to his except imagine it run by somebody who doesn't want to do things electronically. And that person is not me because my wife does the finances and the paperwork. And I say paperwork because she likes to do things on paper. Whenever there's an option (laughs) for most of her life where it says, hey, we could send you your bill electronically or you can get a paper version. She always says paper version. Hey, we could pay your bill automatically if you just give us your credit card number or you can just, you know, do it manually every month. It does it manually every month. Like, it's just what she's comfortable with. She manages all the stuff. So who am I to say, you know, you could just set that up to auto pay and it would be fine. Um, the only uh, time I've ever won that uh, debate is when we got a new credit card for my business when I for my LLC and one month she forgot to pay it uh, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't set up to be automatic. And I said, can I just set this up on auto pay? Because, I mean, it was like a $20 bill, right? <laughs> and she's like, fine, set it up on it. Because so little happens on it that she never thinks to look at it. But she's the one who wants to manage it. So she does it the way she feels comfortable. And that involves a lot of paper. Um, so, yeah, paper things come to the house and they are not scanned <laughs> in any way. Uh, they just stay in paper form. Uh, the main sort of document management activity we do is much like Marco described. It's basically for tax purposes each year collecting together receipts and things that we're going to deduct as business expenses and stuff like that. And that's tedious, but we basically do the same system, which is I have on my Mac a folder for each tax year. And I put in whenever I buy something that I know is attributable to the business, I, you know, make a PDF of the receipt and I stick it in the folder and do all that stuff. Right. And then, but, but since I don't do the finance stuff over on my wife's computer, she's got a similar set of folders and I periodically take my collected things that I've been doing and put them into her to process folder for the tax year. So it's like things that you haven't processed yet, because she's got a way that she wants to do it. I just, I organize it the way I want to do it in folder by date, by year, you know, and I know what the receipts are for and then periodically dump them into her sort of inbox. And then she grinds through them and names them the way she wants. In the end, it's not that many documents, but it's a screen full by the end of the year. Like I'm not expensing tons of stuff. Um, but yeah, things like that. Now for, for almost everything else, like Marco said, uh, Email uh, is great for keeping track of stuff uh, because another activity my wife engages in, which is looking at all of our credit card bills and saying, what's this charge? 
what's this charge? What was this? <laughs> right? Because you know how things show up on your credit card and many companies try to warn you about this. Hey, you're going to get a bill on your credit card. It's going to say something that's not going to make any sense. Even though you're buying your thing from Acme Pet Store, it's not going to say Acme Pet Store. It's going to say VNDQXPR or something asterisk, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, And so you, when you see them on a credit card bill, it's not always clear what they are. Um, the easy solution to finding the answer to that question is search for the exact amount in the email. Uh, and you know, we both use Gmail oh. and she's logged into my Gmail thing or whatever. And if you just search for 1595 in Gmail and it'll give you the results sorted by date by default, the top item is whatever that receipt was. Uh, it's instant. It always works and it answers your question. And then you could say, that's what Acme pet store was. Anyway, that's really smart. Yeah, so email is, uh, well, I would say what's smarter is to not worry about the 1595 charge. But anyway, she really wants to know <laughs> what every single charge, like, she's been doing this for our entire married life. And so far, she has not caught a single case of a company, like, charging us for things that were that we didn't actually buy. Like, I guess that's the fear that, like, somehow just charges to show up in your credit card. Now, I say this, and she's going to tell me once I get off the air that there was a case sometime where we got double charged or something, and she found it. But to my recollection, it's not... Uh, and a uh, common enough occurrence. But anyway, she she deals with this is how she wants to do it. She wants to know what every charge is. Fine. Um, for other documents, like, you know, my whole backup vortex, I've got all of my stuff being backed up in a million different places. My digital stuff is way better protected than the paper stuff. The only reason we have any paper stuff is because, A, she wants paper, and B, like, I forget how many years it is, but, like, you can be audited back to X number of years or something, so you have to, in theory, keep the receipts for that number of years or whatever. Because we have all this paper, we try to keep a buffer of that number of years, and then we just, you know, push off the end and, you know, shred, which is another thing that's a hassle with paper things. You actually actually shred them if you care about this stuff. Shred off the end of the thing. But, it, it, and, you know, we're not running the Fortune 500 company in our house. It's, it's, not, it's not actually that complicated. <laughs> the amount of actual paper is not that big. For our important documents, passports, driver's licenses, all that type of stuff, it's not particularly well protected. Yes, I suppose I do actually have scans of most of those things, but the, most of the reason I have them is not because I'm carefully preserving them. It's because online things very often want you to submit something like that, like for insurance purposes or like who knows, you know, if you ever try to do anything with cryptocurrency, they're always trying to get you to scan like your driver's license and upload it, which I generally refuse to do. In fact, I was trying to buy a domain name recently and one of those you know, semi-slimy domain name, uh, like registrar watch services. Like, hey, that domain name you asked about in 1997, it's available. Do you want to bid on it? <laughs> <laughs> and I always go, sure, I'll give you 50 bucks. And they say, would you consider 30,000? Like, that's how that conversation always goes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this time they're like, you know, you, you want to bid on this domain name? Like, sure, here you go, 50 bucks. What do you think? And they said, well, we your account has been frozen because you need to upload your driver's license. I'm like, well, goodbye. <laughs> you know, I don't I, I suppose there's probably some fraud related reason why they want all this information, but it's like I don't want the domain name that much. Anyway, um I I'm we're not really particularly obsessive about that stuff. If our house burned down, we would lose our passports. We would have to get new driver's licenses, but in the end it, you know, it would be fine. Um and then you know, important documents being with lawyers is another way you can do it. And, but you know, honestly anything that's really important I do have in digital form and that is backed up 20 ways to Sunday. For this, for this question here that Jason had, which is, gets into more than just digital documents, but also like photos and stuff like that, I would, and we've talked about this in the past, so I don't want to go into too much, but I would definitely recommend 
as part of whatever your sort of data backup strategy is, not to just rely entirely on cloud backup. You should have cloud backup because it's physically distant and it's generally economical and it's another sort of another factor in your security of like a different thing that would have to fail. But I would suggest very strongly, as annoying as it is, to have local backups of stuff because the main failure mode is probably not going to be your house burning down. It's probably going to be you accidentally hosing something or like a SSD or hard drive going bad, right? So don't say, I just have my computers and then cloud. That's not enough. You need something in the middle there, which is a local backup. And I know it's a pain in the butt. It's expensive. It's cumbersome. Where am I going to keep this local backup? Is another thing for me to futz with? Do I have to get a Synology now? Do I have to get a tower computer so I can put internal storage? Do I have to have a bunch of SSDs dangling off the end of my computer? I know it's annoying, but I highly recommend including that tier, that sort of, you know, cash, that tier in your cache hierarchy or your backup thing, because just cloud is not enough. I'm not saying cloud is unreliable, but it's so distant from you and cloud companies are flaky. And the bottom line is it's just one thing. You need to have another thing. And no two cloud backup companies probably isn't uh, as good either. Um, and it's a pain to restore from. It's very distant from you. Yes, they will send you a hard drive and stuff or whatever, but having it locally is gives you much more peace of mind and and will let you sort of see the data flowing through more easily in it because you see both the source and then the place you're backing up to. Whereas with the cloud thing, you're just kind of trusting that you'll notice if like it has been failing to back up for the past 10 days or like some weird problem is causing it to silently fail or whatever. So I would recommend the middle tier there. Um, I would not recommend my system of actual paper filing cabinets and paper bills and stuff like that because there's too much stuff to forget or whatever. But it just goes to show that like if, you know... Uh, Defer to the people, to the person who is managing this stuff. Most people don't manage their own paperwork sort of equally with their partner, uh, business partner or life partner, just because it's confusing. So normally one person sort of says, I'm going to be the one to manage the bills. I'll make sure we pay them and I'll make sure we don't double pay them. Whereas both people are equally responsible for the bills. I feel like it's a situation where an email goes out at work to five people and that just gives everyone an excuse not to do anything about it because it wasn't addressed to me, Right. That's that's my advice on managing this. And then whoever is managing this stuff, use whatever, let them use whatever system that they are most comfortable with, even if that system seems barbaric to you or whatever, because in the end they're doing it and it has to fit their brain and the way they want to do it. And I don't think, like again, uh, with the possible exception of Marco, who has sort of some continuity of uh, functionality of an application that he sells that we'd want to continue after his death. Most of us, if we die, it's okay for all of our stuff to just drop on the floor. Like, I mean, we're not <laughs> running, again, we're not running a Fortune 500 company. We're not responsible for the lives of thousands of people, right? Uh, you know, it's... I mean, neither if, is my business. Like, uh, True, but like I'm <laughs> it saying... It doesn't like, matter what, that much. <laughs> what if your family wanted to continue your business as a way of making money? You know what I mean? Like like there is continuity of like income for the family as in when you're gone, that thing could, could still be a going concern and its value would be damaged by it just suddenly falling over and no one having any idea to bring it back up, how to bring it back up. You know what I mean? Like, and it's an asset, right? I should probably start commenting my code. Yeah, and, and it's an asset. Even if you just wanted to sell it or whatever, it loses value if like, oh, Marco died and then Overcast broke and never worked again, Right. Anyway, uh, what I'm saying is that that's the, of the three of us, at least you have something like that for me and Casey. If if Aaron can't get to your source code, honestly, she'll live. Right? <laughs> it's like it's not it's not that big of a deal, and I think that's true of a lot of people's stuff. Again, uh, passports. Like I don't even know if the digital version of your passport is worth anything. Like, is that useful for anything? Just other than making you feel good. But either way, if our house burns down and we lose our passports, we can go get new ones. Like we're not international travelers constantly, and certainly not now. Right? So. Generally, I'm chill about the fact that 
uh, many things in our life are vulnerable to being gone because I don't have, I don't even have a fire safe, right? I don't even have like a, a, a fireproof box. It's like, yeah, yeah, if our house burns down, boy, we're losing a lot of stuff. By the way, can we make sure, can we not hear from all like the safe people? Like, cause I, oh. I know, I know a fireproof box is different from a safe. I know a fireproof safe is different from a regular safe. I know these are all very different things. We don't have to hear about it. I, 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 I actually researched these things a few years back and discovered, you know, like quite how massive and heavy an actual fireproof, actual safe is when it's one thing and all this stuff. We, we really don't need to hear the details. Thank you. Thank you for writing in already. I know if, if you are using that feature in Gmail where you can like unsend the email within a certain amount of time, <laughs> please go back and unsend the one you sent a half hour ago. We don't need it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, you need a saltwaterproof safe because when the hurricane comes and washes away your house, like the, the fire is not your problem. Yeah. <laughs> the, the salt water is going to leak in and just destroy all the stuff. Yeah. If, if you care, if you actually care about the physical safety of things like paper and stuff uh keep it somewhere else like not in your house you know in in someone else's house trade with a friend or a relative uh rent a storage space like what you're trying to do is say if there's a disaster here at least there won't also be a disaster there i mean i suppose <laughs> if a nuclear bomb hits new york city like your your storage facility is probably also gone but then losing your passports is probably the least of your worries. So I don't spend too much time worrying about this stuff. We are probably less protected from silly losses than we could be. We're just playing the odds that, you know, our house isn't going to burn down. Uh, and mostly just our main concerns are like pragmatic. Come tax time, uh, which is the main time we have to deal with family digital documents. Come tax time, can we find all the crap that we need to find to do all the things that we need to do and get filed? Every year, it seems like, oh, it's kind of a hassle or whatever, but like the system that we have is enough to get us through tax time every year, right? And to, and to feel like uh, from week to week and month to month, we are more or less on top of our finances. My wife also does the finances. I think I mentioned this before. She uses You Need a Budget, uh, which is not pronounced Yabnab, but that's what I call it, um, which recently moved online. We had used Quicken before that, at mostly at my insistence, but she didn't like it. And then Quicken 2007 became the latest version for way too long. And then the new Quicken came and it was weird. Anyway, um, some kind of program to manage your finances, to stay on top of, again, whoever's doing that stuff. If they just want to go to the bank's website and use that thing, fine. If they want to use YabNab to make a budget and try to stick to it, fine. Like, whatever. Just, I, I think... I think it is not as dire as like, you know, when we talk about the stuff in the past, we tend to be preachy about like, oh, back up all your stuff, back up all your photos. I think that is so much more dire than keeping track of all your receipts. Like, what do you, like, if there's some ca catastrophe that happens, are you going to be more sad that you lost five years worth of receipts or all the pictures of your kids? That's why we, we harp on like protecting your family photos so much more than we ever talk about. Here's my sophisticated filing system for every restaurant I ever ate on and how much I tipped. So I can put it in a spreadsheet and calculate it and show you trends over time. Like, no, that's not as important as pictures of your kids or pictures of yourselves or anything like that. Like photos are so much more valuable than everything else, which is why at least I personally spend so much more time making sure and money making sure all of my sort of precious irreplaceable family memories that are in digital form are massively protected meanwhile my passports driver's license and electric bills are just gonna burn with the house you know for someone who is so completely anal retentive and over the top about your digital stuff i really want to make fun of you for not having basically any protection for physical things 
But your logic does make sense, John Syracuse, as it often does. And uh, and yeah, I, I can't entirely blame you. I just wanted to kind of echo a couple of things you said. Uh, I am not quite as dedicated to paper stuff as Tina, but that's that dedication has only been waning in the last year or two. Uh, I do plug in all of our expenditures and, and things of that nature. Um, I, I do it in former sponsor Banktivity, which has uh, native apps for all Apple platforms. Um, I used to use Quicken 2007 for years and years and years and years, even long after long after 2007 had gone, come and gone. Um, I personally like having that feeling of, I would say control, but maybe awareness over where our money is going. I, I don't think. Yeah, the good news is we we are not living you know paycheck to paycheck, so it wouldn't be critical for me to know. Uh oh, you know we spent. 20 bucks at McDonald's and that's put us way over the budget for this month. And now we might not be able to pay our mortgage. Like there, there was a time that was me. I think I've mentioned on the show many times that like I would treat myself to one McDonald's value meal a week when I had first started working and being a real adult. And I felt like more than, and actually I think it was factual more than one, like $7 McDonald's meal in a week would, would, not financially ruin me, but put me in a genuinely bad spot. So um, anyway, I bring all this up to say, I still like having that awareness. I still like having that control maybe. Um, and then somebody put in the, in the chat and I think we should bring it up. Uh, former sponsor Backblaze has put together a really good reference to the three, two, one backup strategy, which I think is a really good way of looking at how to back up your digital stuff. So um, what is this? It's uh, how does this work? It's three different copies, two of which can be local, but different things so like different drives or like CD and hard drive, or whatever. And at least one copy that is not in your house. And for stuff like pictures and whatnot, I think that you, me, and probably Marco as well are easily achieving this for other things, perhaps not, but for stuff like you had said, John, like pictures that you really, really, really don't want to lose that you can't get back from anyone else. I can't stress enough, you know, be it Backblaze or someone else, try to figure out this, to, how to do a three, two, one setup for yourself. And the flip side of the picture things, by the way, is, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that I've spent an ungodly amount of money printing photo books from Apple Photos and uh, Mimeo and, and Apple Photos is uh, gone now is because it's kind of the reverse backup. If I have a digital disaster and somehow my 19 copies of my photos all get erased <laughs> from the internet, probably through like ransomware or some other terrible malicious thing, at least I have now essentially, you know, I have like several feet of physical photo albums in the form of photo books. Several so, feet? <laughs> yeah. That's, it, that's the unit of measure for pictures. Right. right. As measured by shelf space of these books like sort of lining, lining my shelf. It's maybe like three feet, maybe. Anyway, um, and I try not to calculate the price when I look at that because these books are so expensive. But uh, you don't have to do it that way. You could just like I, making prints, making photo prints of your digital things is a reverse backup of your digital stuff. And now I would granted I would be devastated if I lost all my digital photos because I have, you know, 130,000 of them. And there's probably, you know, maybe a thousand photos in those books. But a thousand of my best photos is better than zero photos. So uh, and plus making physical copies of your photos is a good idea. Obviously, we have pictures and picture frames around the house and everything, too. But having actual albums where you just, you know, print your favorite pictures at Walgreens at the end of the year and stick them in an album, like just something minimal like that doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have you don't have to do these silly photo books that I pay for. But it's it's nice to have that as a backup. And it's also nice to have that as a thing that you can just leaf through. Like I was you know, one of the gifts I give my parents frequently is you know, photo albums of pictures of their grandkids, which 
They appreciate it. I do wonder how much they look at them, but I do know for a fact that they're not like perusing my digital pictures online, even though they technically could in various ways. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, hey, I give you this photo book and you flip through it when you get it and then you put it on your shelf. But maybe, you know, you sit down on the couch one day and see the book and take it out and flip through it again. It's, it's nice to have physical copies of your photos for people who aren't so connected with digital life that they routinely flip through photos on their phone or look at their little memories from Apple. Like some people do that or even have digital picture frames or whatever, but not everyone does that. Um, not everyone is accustomed to that. And even if you are, uh, having physical copies is, is nice as well. So I alluded to earlier that I had a bit of an epiphany with regard to Apple One. And this came because I got my first bill for Apple TV+. And we are working through the second season of For All Mankind, which we are on the penultimate episode, no spoilers, but oh boy, things just got serious. And uh, and I'm very excited to continue watching that. Uh, Ted Lasso comes out in just a couple weeks, so you bet that I'm not canceling Apple TV Plus anytime soon. But I got this $5 bill for Apple One, or I'm sorry, for Apple TV Plus, and I've been getting $10 a month bills for Apple Fitness Plus, and I've been getting, I think, $10 a month bills for iCloud Storage. And it occurred to me as I got this new $5 bill, you know, I'm really approaching the amount of money I would probably be spending on Apple One or whatever they're, that's what it's called, right? Apple One, the, the like, get everything. Right, that's right. It's called Apple One because there's more than one plan because that makes total sense. <laughs> right, totally. Uh, so anyway, so it occurred to me that, you know, if I'm spending, what is that, like 25 bucks, um, 25 bucks a month on various Apple services, why wouldn't I just pony up the extra five bucks to get a whole ton more iCloud storage? Get fine, maybe finally put us on a family plan and uh, maybe and, the f- and, iCloud photo library and give me iCloud photo library maybe? and Apple Music, which I don't <laughs> think I care about because I am a devout Spotify person. You please don't at me. Um, but it occurred well, to me the, the ultimate luxury of uh, getting Apple Music when you use Spotify is the same reason I have Spotify and Apple Music is just being able to follow other people's links and hear music. Because people, because people, the Spotify people think everyone has Spotify, and the Apple Music people think everyone has Apple Music. And when people send links to songs, I don't use either one of those services, but I pay for both of them, uh, so I can follow people's <laughs> links. And uh, that's not the main. I mean, my my uh, my daughter is into Spotify, so I'm basically paying for that for her. And Apple Music, I'm I get it because it's part of Apple One, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And well, and so there's a really great, just very quickly, there's a really great website. I think it's called Song Whip. If that's not right, I'll put it in the show notes. But it can, and I'm sure this is not the only one, but it's one that's been very reliable for me that will let you go back and forth between um, different services. So, you know, you can put in a Spotify link and you'll get out a more generic link that, that you can share. Uh, isn't it, this service is kind of like song.link, with I, which I think it might be spyware, malware. I don't know. But like oh, cool. the, the great the function these function of these websites is because the problem i just described like hey if you want to link to something it just might be natural for you to give a spotify link but then if you actually think about it for a second like oh but what about the people who don't have spotify how are they going to listen to this thing well i don't know what service everyone subscribes to so how do i just link to a song these meta sites exist that say if you want to link to a song uh here link to this web page on our site and this web page will say listen to the song in huge list of services. So then you land on the web page and then you just tap on whatever service that you actually pay for, if any of them. And maybe they also have like a free YouTube link or whatever. And so, you know, in the context of Twitter or whatever, if you want to link to a song, 
you link to one of those sites. I used to use song.link because I saw people using it, but I think it might be shady. I have seen the song whip one, and that's the context I've seen it, where it's just a landing page with 20 links to the same song, which I think is a great thing. And I would love a more reliable, like if Apple did something like that, obviously Apple's not going to do it because they're not going to link to Spotify, but like some company that I trusted not to turn that link into terrible malware 10 years down the line would be great. But in the meantime, I have used those things sometimes when tweeting. Yep. So anyway, so it occurred to me, you know what, it's probably, it's probably about time that I start actually taking action on this and not just kicking this can further and further and further down the road. So I haven't done anything yet, but to recap, uh, the current setup is I have my own Apple ID and my own store account. Erin has her own Apple ID, but she is riding on my app store account. So the good news is she doesn't have like a bunch of her own purchases and things like they're all our purchases or really strictly speaking, they're my purchases. And so I think it'll be relatively straightforward. He says famous last words as he knocks (laughs) on wood um, that in order to convert mine to be like the family, I don't know, maven or boss. I don't know what the correct term is in in Apple parlance, but family organizer, if you will. uh, And then just add Aaron's like iMessage ID, her, her standard Apple ID to that new family. And then hopefully that'll work out. But if you're in this situation, you have this exact situation where you had the like the 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 complete picture Apple ID or your sp- your spouse did, and then the other one of you joined a new family. Like if you're in this scenario and you've lived this, only if you've lived exactly this, please reach out via email or Twitter and let me know what you've done. Because sometime in the next couple of weeks, I think I'm going to try to take the plunge. And so that means. I'll do, you know, a family plan finally that'll give Aaron iCloud backups, which she hasn't had in forever, I don't think. Uh, it'll give me iCloud backups potentially because I'll finally have the space for it. And then the next step is to get, more more likely than not, to get some big, huge, honking SSD to put all my pictures on. And I don't even remember how many how much space my pictures take up. But I don't think I want to s- sacrifice all that space on my iMac for reasons I can't even put my finger on. So if I don't just put them on the, on my iMac, then I'm going to need some sort of big hard drive to put them or big SSD to put them on, which is going to be several hundred dollars. So suddenly I've gone from $15 a month to several hundred dollars and $30 a month. Oh, that's what happens these days. But yeah, I think, I think it's time. You should listen to ATP because we talked about this exact scenario many shows ago. I did the thing you're describing. <laughs> did I, you? okay. I had the Apple ID that owned everything in the entire family, just like you do now. And my wife had an Apple ID, but she'd never purchased anything on it. And we made a family, and I became the family organizer, and my wife joined the family, and then we had kids, and they joined the family. Like, it'll be fine. <laughs> we talked about it. All right. I, I remember talking. I couldn't remember what the details were with either. To be honest, I thought it was Marco that had the same situation. I mean, you could potentially screw it up if you do something weird during it. But I'm saying like the, the scenario you just described, I did that. That's exactly what I did. And so far, it's been fine. Now, the other weird thing about it is uh, we continue to purchase things through my Apple ID. We don't have to. My wife could purchase things on her Apple ID and sometimes does. You know, but in general, just for simplicity's sake, I continue to buy most of the stuff on my Apple ID because everyone has access to it. You know, if I buy it and, you know, in-app purchases are, I think you can opt into that or whatever, and it's changed over the years. But in general, I buy it and then everyone in the family has access to it. You don't have to keep doing that. You can switch after you do the family to doing individual purchases. And that's fine, too. And the kids sometimes purchase their own stuff when they get like gift cards for iTunes or whatever. But uh, as we said on past shows, it works surprisingly well. 
Yeah, the, I've had, I mean, geez, I've been doing Apple family sharing for years and years and years. I, I mean, I think within a few months of them introducing it, I think our, my, all, my whole family was in it. And it's been great. I've had no problems. Like, you know, Tiff and I are the adults on the account. I, I'm pretty sure us using family sharing predated Adam existing. But once Adam <laughs> existed, he was added to the account. Like, it's been totally fine. And there's all sorts of great things, like with the the, the parental, like, ask for, ask for permission for in-app purchases or for um, screen time extensions on limits and stuff like that. It's fantastic. It works very, very well. And... I, I commend Apple for getting that really right really early on uh, because it's been it's been great. Let's move on and do some Ask ATP. I don't know how much we're going to get through, but Carlos Luis Portillo writes, Portillo, I actually would suppose, uh, what is the latest on y'all's desk chairs? A few years back, Marco talked about his experience with the, the Embody and John had just purchased one. Have any of y'all tried anything new or is the Embody still the one to get? Uh, I will start because I'm extremely boring and simple. I still have a... Uh, gifted desk chair that I am sitting on that is fine. And I probably should get a better one, but I'm cheap and I haven't. So that's my story. Same as it ever was. <laughs> Marco, what do you got going on? Uh, I still like the Embody for most desk usage. That being said, um, for the beach, I got an Aeron. Uh, I had a couple of summers here where I just got like a cheap, you know, Amazon Basics, whatever, and because, you know, it's the beach, you know, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of moisture and heat here. I didn't want to, like, ruin a nice chair with that. Um, but once I started spending longer times out here in the summertime, having the Amazon Basics chair was killing my back. Like, it, I noticed the difference. It sucked. Like, it's fine for whatever, you know, 50 bucks that it cost. And it's fine for temporary short-term use or, you know, not very many hours in a day. But... I noticed the difference when I was sitting in that for, you know, my full-time job. Um, so I upgraded to, uh, I wanted to get a Herman Miller chair for here. And I know, I know the Embody is great, but because it's so hot and humid here, the Embody has a lot more like fabric that's thicker and touching your body compared to the Aeron, which is very cool and, you know, mesh-like. So I went Aeron for this. I'd use them um, back in my days when I worked for actual other people. And so I, so I knew that, Aerons were good for me and they, they fit me well and uh, yeah so I went with that and it's, it's great again it's Herman Miller it's expensive but it's very well made it has a I think 10 or 12 year warranty and it's awesome so no regrets John so I mean the one of, one of the advantages of buying a horrendously expensive chair is that you don't have to think about chairs for a while so I'm still using the Embody uh, I liked it when I bought it I still like it now it is the same as when I bought it uh, that's why you spend a lot of money on a chair I suppose uh, my wife had the Steelcase Gesture and I have to say despite the fact that she liked that chair better than this one it is not held up as well it has more creaks and more things that are you know wearing a little bit on that chair the creaks really annoy me because we spent a lot of money for that for the gesture and i don't want anything to be creaking and there's like this plastic panel that keeps like popping off that i have to tuck back in whereas the embody is like the day i got it like it shows nowhere it does not make any noises every there's no extra play or slop in any portion of it um yeah, so, but that doesn't mean that you should get an Embody. Like, remember what we did with the chairs? I tried to do as much research as I could. I went to stores and sat in lots of different chairs, and then we bought two different chairs, hoping that one of us would like one, at least one of us would like one, and then we could return the other one. It just so happens we got lucky that my wife liked the gesture, and I liked this one. So, hey, we just, we were all set. We didn't have to return anything. But you, honestly, you have to sit in chairs with your body 
ideally for longer than five seconds in the store, but at least for five seconds in the store, because I went to lots of these fancy ergonomic chair stores and sat in a whole bunch of chairs. And you could tell sometimes, no, this one doesn't fit my body or this one's a maybe or whatever. So don't just buy the Embody because you hear a bunch of podcasters got it, uh, at least of which is because it's so expensive. You really have to like this chair to you know do that. But you should get, to Marco's point, a good chair that you like, that's comfortable for you. And yes, money is somewhat of a proxy for durability and comfort, but not always. Like, there's lots of very expensive chairs that I sat in that I would be miserable in, right? So don't just buy based on price and don't just buy it because you hear us talk about something. But please do buy a decent chair that fits you well. Uh, my chair that I had prior to this, as we discussed, was a $250 chair, which was, at the time I bought it, a it was the horrendously expensive chair of the 20-something John, right? Because <laughs> that was a lot of money for me when I was, you know, making a lot less money at my very first job out of college and living in Georgia or whatever. Um and that chair was not a high quality chair, but hey, $250 in 1998, like that's, you know, I don't know what that translates to, but it's, it's not a cheap chair. It's not a $50 chair. Uh, and that one did slowly deteriorate and get creaky or whatever. But I was glad that I spent that money on that because I was going to be working from home at that time and I didn't want a $50 chair. Um, the $250 chair uh, lasted me until what, you know, just a couple of years ago. So definitely get a... Uh, a decent chair. Spend a little bit more money than you think you should spend, but don't necessarily buy the specific fancy chair that a bunch of podcasters you listen to bought. <laughs> All right, moving right along. Stephen Kim writes, I'm thinking about getting a dedicated camera. My biggest gripe with this kind of photo taking process is the ingest process. Oh, don't even get me started. I connect the SD <laughs> to my M1 iMac and then go through the photos and find her deleting the bad shots and then importing the rest to photos. This is sounding all too familiar. The problem is previewing a photo in Finder. The, these are not instant. There's an ever so slight lag going from one photo to the next. The photos app itself is better, so I can import these photos and prune them there. But it feels wasteful to import a bunch of photos that will automatically start uploading to the cloud when I know a vast majority of them are bad shots and are going to be deleted. It's like I wrote this. I'm curious to know <laughs> what each of you do when taking photos from your big cameras and ingest them into your photo library. That's lowercase photo library because this is what Stephen wrote. That's lowercase photo library because I believe Casey still needs to switch over to iCloud photo library. Well, well, look at what we just talked about. Um, I have talked on and off about my photo ingest process for a while, but in broad strokes, it's kind of sort of what, what you're talking about. Uh, I go through an SD card using Finder. I don't love it, especially when I'm loading RAWs, especially when I'm doing it on anything but my iMac Pro. Um, I don't tend to keep very many RAW photos. It's only things that I think are like really, really fantastic shots, but I shoot in JPEG and RAW just in case. Uh, I, I, to come to think of it, I don't think I've ever used a RAW photo in the seven years I've had a big camera. But This is why you have 1.2 terabytes I know, it's of true. photos. It's I, true. I, have, I have still have less than a terabyte of photo, and I have way more photos than you, and you know why? No raws or very few raws. So I, I think I, you're right. You, you've got a raw problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think there's a cream for that. Oh lordy. Uh, well, anyways, uh, so yeah, so I I you know get them down to what I think is reasonable on the SD card. Then I use an app called GeoTag, which is sufficient. I, I don't love it, but it works in order to geotag the photos that have come in off the big camera, because it's really important to me to have uh, ge geographic information on those photos, because it's not unusual for me to look up things by where they were taken. Uh, so I use geotag to tag them to at least an approximation of where they were taken. Uh, and then I use my bespoke app that I wrote that is not 
going to be open source because the code sucks. It's not going to be for sale because it sucks. But it does work for me, and uh, that's what that's the thing that like files it away on my Synology into um, year folders for years, folders for months, and then a what is it ISO whatever whatever. So it's you know twenty twenty one hyphen oh seven hyphen oh seven, and then the time after that. Um, it's not great. I don't love it. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to using iCloud Photo Library. I guess I would import to the Synology and then drag from the Synology into Photos, which is super convoluted and weird, which is part of the reason I've never used iCloud Photo Library, but here we are. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's wonky. Marco, I've, I've given you first shot for the last several. So, John, what are you doing these days? Yeah, I'm speaking to Stephen, but I'm also speaking to Casey here. So <laughs> I don't know why either one... Well, I know why Casey is for us. I importing into the finder when you're planning on putting in photos don't do that just import directly into photos if there's one thing the photos actually does a reasonable job at is imports it has a separate dedicated section showing your photos organized by when you imported them which is essential for organizing because they're not necessarily the order that they were taken in there's not date order because you might be importing from multiple cameras and anyway important to photos yes i understand like oh i import them but i'm not going to keep most of them and i don't want to waste time uploading it to don't worry about it. that's what the computer is there for just delete the ones you don't want if that was hey, if i that have one was, empathy for the computer john <laughs> but it's all i can tell you that the the upload speed especially if you don't have gigabit fiber like i do but even if you do you're going to probably be able to go through them faster than your computer can upload them just because <laughs> photos is lackadaisical about getting around to pushing your stuff up or whatever but even if it doesn't it's fine. Like, I swear it's fine. And sometimes it'll save your butt because you'll be like, oh, I delete. I want this one, this one. And you'll go through it and you realize, you know what? I, you know, I thought I had more angles in that one shot. And even though I picked the one I like, I actually would like those ones back. Guess what? Look in your recently deleted things and it'll be in there. And if it's not in recently deleted, it might be on another computer or recently deleted because it got uploaded. But don't worry about it. Like, it's the whole point of a cloud library. Just import into photos, sort in photos, delete in photos. They'll go into recently deleted 30 days or whatever later. They'll get purged from recently deleted. Like, it takes care of itself. That's why you want a photo library. That's why you don't want a hand-organized shoebox of files like uh, Casey has. And guess what? Photos does a pretty good job of previewing images quickly. Like, don't use the finder and quick look as your way of going through photos. It's just... No. And and by the way, once you get into any kind of workflow with fo Apple Photos or literally any other program that manages photos, you'll get into a nice workflow of hitting the period key to mark thing as a fave or knowing the keyboard shortcuts to quickly crop or do whatever or applying adjustments to multiple photos or tagging things or getting into a workflow with an actual dedicated photos app is way, way better than using the finder. Please stop using the finder. Sorry, dad. All right, Marco, what do you got? So in an ideal world, I can see a, a pretty good argument for shooting RAW plus JPEG. And the reason why is that in most cases, you would just import the JPEG and leave the RAW alone. And the idea would be that you would, you would go through your JPEGs and you would, you would pick and choose the ones you like best. And you would be able to tell pretty quickly, are there any of these that I'm going to need to or want to edit to such a degree that the raw would be beneficial. So am I am I making like large changes to the color temperature or color balance, or do I need to pull a whole, whole lot of detail out of the shadows or highlights? Uh, and you can tell that pretty quickly, like in your first pass going through them. Like, am I really going to need the raw for this ever? And for the few that you do, keep those. For all the rest of the ones that you don't, get rid of the raws, and then you just have all the JPEGs. And then 
put those into you know Apple Photos for long term long term storage after maybe sending them through something like Lightroom for like the raw tweaking and everything. Okay, that's what I would do in an ideal world. In the real world, I basically never use big cameras anymore. In part because this process is so cumbersome and I sucked so badly at having any kind of discipline to actually do it. So in reality, what I did for a while was try to occasionally shoot photos on a nice big camera, see how awesome they were, import them into photos as raw, never do anything with them really, forget to ever pick through them, um, and then eventually, you know, I would I would forget about them, and then. Uh, you know, there's this massive, like, 30-gig block of photos from this day, like, sitting in my photo library forever, taking up space on all my devices forever. Um, I would have duplication problems where, like, okay, well, I would want to edit the RAWs in Lightroom, which I now, now what is now known as Lightroom Classic, um, you know, old Lightroom. I'd want to edit them there because that had the better RAW editor of anything I'd used. But then I'd want to, like, actually have my photo library live in iCloud photo library so everything could be in one place and the iPhone could be you know automatically included in that and everything so I would I would ideally edit in Lightroom and then ship everything over to photos app and then delete them out of my Lightroom whatever in practice didn't do that right either in practice I would just have two copies of everything and not know like can I safely delete this from here is this my only copy of this photo am I gonna have three or zero copies of this photo that I'm trying to have one copy of it was a mess. And so the reality is I just don't use big cameras anymore for m- multiple reasons, but this was a big one that I I just never really nailed this process. I was always you know sloppy about it and I would always have all the best intentions and very ambitious ideas of what I would do and then what I would do in real life was very different and and inferior and much lower effort and sloppier. I actually <laughs> I know this is not the time to wedge us in, but hey, it's our show. Uh, <laughs> I think it would be really interesting to consider the idea. I know this would never actually happen, but just to consider the idea, what if Apple made a dedicated camera? Now, I know <laughs> why they don't. I know that basically the phone is their dedicated camera in addition to being a phone, and that you know this is it's already this thousand dollar thing that we upgrade every few years and and you know and it takes great pictures and uses all their AI and everything. But wow, can you imagine how amazing it would be if you could give Apple's silicon and and integration benefits to a device that could have bigger glass and bigger sensors? Can you imagine what it could do? Like, look at what it does with little tiny garbage glass and little tiny garbage sensors that you can fit in a phone and just make it the size of a point-and-shoot. Not, I'm not even saying make it like a giant SLR or even mirrorless. Obviously, Apple doesn't even need that much physical space for their stuff to make it amazing. Just make it like you know, the size of like a Sony RX100 series thing. Imagine what they could do with that. Uh, but... I recognize that's not the world that we live in, but if they would ever do that, that would be such a dream setup of like, imagine that Apple makes a camera that just uploads to your photo library like a phone. (laughs) That would be just automatically, you just take the pictures and a few seconds later, they're there. Oh my God, that would be incredible. (laughs) And I think that's part of the reason why iPhones are everyone's camera for the most part. Like it's, not only is is it always with you and and not only is it, a better camera now than most cameras most people can buy that are operated in most people's hands. But also, what do you want to do when you take a picture? 
you might want to share it somewhere. You might want to send it to somebody or post it on Instagram or something. Like that's such a common thing. Like what's the next step you want to do with this picture? And when you're working with a regular, you know, non-phone camera, that process is so cumbersome and heavy and time consuming and, and data consuming. And it's so easy to basically fall out of it like I did. Um, so my answer to this question is I, I don't have a process to ingest photos from my big camera to my photo library because I no longer even do that at all. It sounds like you never really had much of a process. You had an, uh, an idea of a process, <laughs> but you weren't actually executing on it. I would not recommend trying to use Lightroom and photos. Like I, I realized I kind of skipped over like what my process is. My process is I take pictures with my big camera. I connect my camera to my computer with USB and import the photos into photos. And I only shoot in JPEG. That's it. That's the whole process. Like there is no importing into another app. There's no manual organization. The new camera does have a geotagging app. I'm not sure if it's working. I think it might be. But in the end, like I don't care as much as Casey about the, the, the geotagging integration. If I did, I would try harder to get this weird Sony app to to work. Like I can look at the picture more or less tell where it is. Um, but uh but yeah, that's that's my workflow. And I've talked about how annoying it is that I have to import my phone pictures into my wife's library because she owns the library but that's a problem that no one has solved as far as i'm aware and i'm willing to deal with that annoyance uh you know in the hopes that someday apple remedy this in exchange for using what for me has been a very reliable system of maintaining my photo library i've printed books from it back from back when it was called iphoto it lets me organize my stuff the minimal amount of editing that i do i can do within the application i have complaints about the application uh, but in general, it has the trend, although it has been very bumpy with a big dip when they iOSified everything, it has been positive over time. And, you know, I, I keep expecting someday Apple Photos to just totally fall over and fail me and then I'll have to find some new solution. But that day hasn't come yet. It's just always, you know, teetering on the edge of falling over for my, like I said, 130, 140,000 photos. There's some raws mixed in there, but generally not that many, mostly because I don't want to end up in the situation where my photos can't fit because I do want my photos on the main hard drive, the main thing that I back up. I don't want it to be a separate thing. So I don't, if I took everything in raw, this would be, you know, terabytes, right? But because they're mostly JPEGs with a, few, a smattering of raws thrown in, I'm able to have a huge number of photos and not take up that much room. And it really does make a difference. Like Marco said, you know, when I, when I first got a camera that shot raw, I did a bunch of raw shooting and I saw what this would look like if you do this at the volume I take pictures and it's just too much, right? Not just the processing over that, but just the plain, like, how much space is this taking up on disk? And it makes you be so much more brutal about deleting stuff. I prefer, in, in my ingestion flow, to mostly keep anything that is not, you know, like, I'll, I'll keep the seven different versions of the same picture, unless they're out of focus or something or whatever. But I'll, I'll keep them just because, hey, they're JPEGs. It's really not that big. I'm not as brutal as I would be. If I had RAWs, I would really, really want to narrow it down. And then, so that's my ingest flow and my... my out Jess I don't know <laughs> the, the outward flow like again I had, I had some friend visit recently and we hadn't seen them in a while took a whole bunch of pictures that day on my big camera connected my big camera over the cable to my computer imported into photos pick delete crop edit chucked a bunch into a temporary folder shared to my shared photo library everybody sees them done it's like you know 15 minutes worth of activity then that includes also importing from my phone, which involves connecting my phone to my computer with a wire, importing into image <laughs> capture because photos is broken, <laughs> dragging it into photos. But they all just go into photos, organize, pick, crop, select, shared photo album, share, done. That's a privilege I have as someone who's like 
relatives all use iPhones and can see all the photos, but you know, either way, like it, it is a, the, the all Apple, all JPEG straightforward workflow, even if you have both a dedicated camera and a bunch of iPhones can work and it's, it's reasonable. Please avoid the finder and please, please don't try to use Lightroom and photos at the same time. Marco, does Tiff ever use the big camera, her big camera, or y'all's big camera? She uses it all the time. I see, I see that like part of Marco's uh, uh, retirement from fancy cameras is suddenly Tiff has access to all the cameras. I was, I was surprised when I saw her <laughs> using the Sony in a recent some social thing. I was like, oh, she's not using the Canon for these things. She needs some better long lenses for the whale pictures, though. It, oh, that's so true. I, I, you don't realize how long it is. So Ray, the, I do. I know how far you are from the beach, and I know where that whale is. But I'm just saying, like you the, could, the lens is the Sony 200 to 600, mm-hmm. and we have a 2x teleconverter on it to bring it to 1200, yeah. which does also drop off tons of light and makes the photos. I mean, it's it's not a super sharp lens to begin with. Yeah, they're they're pl- they're plenty bright, but they're very soft. It's yeah, and that's that's part. It is it is part of the lens problem. Like if you look at the reviews of this lens, it's not amazing, even though it is massive and it's overall a high quality lens. But just serving the two hundred to six hundred range with any degree of like super sharpness is is not an easy thing to do. And then also just stabilization at that range. You know, it has image stabilization in the lens and in the camera body. You're not you're not on a tripod. Well, usually it's it's like resting on a on the railing of the deck or mm. something like that. No, but a tripod. even with that like it's it's a significant uh challenge to just stabilize it. Um so it's <laughs> it's it, it's certainly a challenge getting those pictures to be good and most of it is not most of it would not be improved by like an even more expensive lens. Like that's that's actually not the problem here. Might be improved by a tripod though. Possibly, yes. So what is her workflow? Do you know, Marco? Because if she's taking shots with the big camera constantly, she's got to have some sort of fix for this problem. She uses her computer to like, you know, import stuff from it. But, but you know, the first thing she usually does is take a picture with her phone of the viewfinder on the camera displaying the picture that she wants to post on Instagram and <laughs> post that first because it's faster. Because like, it, cause otherwise, it's like, all right, well, okay, now I have to like Bring the bring the SD card to my computer, plug in the dongle, find the dongle or plug in or connect the camera with a USB C cable, right? So like the it's like then do the whole import thing, uh, you know, get it into Photos or whatever or or Adobe Bridge or you know whatever editing thing she she wants to do with it. That's right. I think I think she still uses Bridge. Last time I talked to her about this was granted was a little while ago. Yeah, I mean it's it's not it's it's a cumbersome process, you know, as we as we've just been talking about. So. Uh, you know, usually she will get it into her photo library within a, a, a day or two, but it's it's very different from like, oh my god, I just shot this amazing picture. I want to post this on Instagram right now, or send this to somebody right now, like an iMessage. So it's you know, I, I feel like because that second step is so often like, oh my god, I just took this amazing picture. I want to do something with it on my phone right now. You know, usually it's showing someone whether it's a lot of someone's through a social media thing or whether you're messaging it to, you know, your, your partner or whatever, like you just, you want to show it to someone. And it's so often that that involves being on your phone so that the process of just getting the camera to give the picture to your phone somehow, usually having to involve a computer or some kind of awful app from the camera manufacturer. Like it's, it's such a cumbersome process and nothing has ever made it better. Like nothing, like all the different, you know, my fi cards and direct Wi-Fi connections that the cameras have. Sometimes it can be controlled through their apps and everything. 
they're all garbage. They're all cumbersome, clunky, terrible, fragile, and slow. And believe me, I've used many of these things. <laughs> they're terrible. And so that's why I'm saying like I would just love if Apple just made a camera that that would just upload directly to your iCloud photo library, whatever it took. That would be incredible. But the answer is they do make that. It's called the iPhone. And that's that's it. <laughs> and if that's not what you want or it if, doesn't come with any good lenses. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> <sighs> someday, someday, maybe. You know, that maybe that'll be like, you know, Schiller's project on the roof is like, you know, he's finally like <laughs> getting Apple to release. Because like, I mean, look, Apple likes charging $5,000 for really boutique, expensive, high-end things. Like, look at what people like Sony or, you know, higher-end, like, look at what Leica charges for their little, their little you know, mirrorless or fixed-lens point-and-shoots. Like, Apple could do something amazing in that market for like 2000 3000 bucks. Oh, my God. Like, imagine what they could do. And it would have all the advantages of, you know, being able to be integrated with your phone somehow. But I, I know the reality for, for so many reasons. I know that that's really a pipe dream. That they're never going to do that. But one, one can dream in pipes. <laughs> what is a pipe dream? Is, is it a dream in pipes or of pipes or containing pipes? I don't know, actually. I, I think that uh, you got me confused by talking about it. I, I, the way it's phrased is normally it's like a dream that's not going to happen. Yeah. But pipes happen all the time. Oh, God, we're so sheltered. Uh, so Wikipedia for pipe dream, very, very bottom. Wild dreams induced by inhaling from an opium pipe. <laughs> well, there you go. That wow, we're all way too straight edge. <laughs> the, the, the main association I had is the video game, which I really love. That was a great game. Do you remember pipe dream? No. Yeah, yes, you absolutely do remember pipe dream. You just don't remember the name. It's a, it's a, you're, it's a, like a grid and you get to put tiles on them that have pipes, right? And then eventually water is going to start flowing. So you get, it's like pieces drop and it's like, oh, I have a horizontal pipe and a vertical pipe and a T pipe and an X pipe. And you have to just put them anywhere on the board before the water starts flowing. And once the water starts flowing, you've hopefully made a pipe sequence so the water won't come out. Oh yeah. It's a great game. I would have known about that before I knew about the other meaning. Yeah, the opium pipe, yes. Was, <laughs> pipe, pipe Dream the Game was definitely more uh, more of a factor in my childhood than an opium pipe. <laughs> I hope so. Jesus. Speaking of games, uh, Zephyr Zahar <laughs> writes, Good transition. I, imagine, I imagine Nintendo came to Apple and asked for an M1 license for their next Nintendo Switch Pro. Why would Apple refuse, and why would Nintendo not attempt this? And this is also relevant on account of the uh, new OLED Switch having come out, which I want, if if for nothing else, just because of the kickstand, which is so much nicer. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I don't see Apple licensing the M1 to anyone for any reason, even somebody in a different industry, because I think they think of this as their... Uh, what's the opposite of an Achilles heel? Like, their their, their superpower, that, that this is what what gives them a, a competitive edge and advantage over everyone else. And I don't think they would want to give that to anyone regardless of industry. I mean, it's not, it's not an obscure industry with Apple, you know, 85% of Apple's profits in the app store coming from games. Nintendo is a direct competitor. Don't give your competitor like your best hardware asset, which are these amazing <laughs> CPUs that they've made for their phones, iPads and Macs. Yeah. So obviously that's why Apple would refuse uh, is, you know, why would you help a competitor be better than they otherwise would be? Um, the other reason I feel like they would refuse is Apple needs all the chips it can make for its stuff, especially now that they're using the same chips and all their stuff. Um, and then why would Nintendo not attempt this? I mean, if Apple offered, Nintendo would be just, you know, incredibly foolish to refuse. Apple would never offer. But 
uh, Nintendo is also a very proud company and tends to not be on the bleeding edge of technology very intentionally. In the past, uh, various people who have made very popular products, in fact, there was a good article recently about, uh, recently about the person who made the Game Boy, like very intentionally makes a, make a product with established, essentially older technology that it's inexpensive to make and very reliable and rely instead on things that don't have to do with cutting edge technology to make your games fun. Witness the Wii not so much the Wii U, but even the Switch, which uses <laughs> an extremely old, off-the-shelf chipset, slightly modified, that is massively less powerful than its competing consoles, and yet the Switch is selling like hotcakes because the games are really good, and Nintendo had a good idea for a product, this handheld-slash-TV thing, right? They made a good product, they made it with older technology, and Nintendo is proud of the fact that they sort of go their own way. So Nintendo would not come begging uh, to Apple, you know... Sony and Microsoft might, although Sony's also very proud. Microsoft would totally do it, though. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> Apple's not giving this stuff to anybody. Like, yeah, who, who wouldn't want a chip that's incredibly low power and incredibly fast? Like, every game console maker could do amazing things with this chip, but nope, you don't get it. Only Apple does. Yeah, and a couple other reasons, too. I mean, whatever amount of money Nintendo would, would make them in this deal, I don't think would be worth Apple having a customer for the chip that's not them and therefore having to do things like you know make contracts to make this chip available for a certain amount of time and a certain volume and ha- and you know have to then answer to this customer and and deal with them and and you know what if there's a problem with the chip then you know apple has to deal with that i, I just i can't see apple wanting to take on the burden of a customer on that level um and then the, secondly you know the whether nintendo might not want this uh, cost, I think, would be a pretty big problem. You know, the, the Switch is a three hundred ish, two hundred ish dollar game console. Uh, I guess I know about the new one that's three fifty, and I know about the little one that's two hundred. But you know, uh, s- suppose they would put this in like the high end new one for three fifty. There aren't any M one devices that are anywhere near that price point. Um, I don't know what Apple pays for the M1, but <laughs> they would use an A12 and it would still be faster. That's true. <laughs> like, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, like the Nintendo is not buying top of the line anything, right? So, it, it the cost wouldn't be a factor because they wouldn't be using an M1. They would be, you know, your your other point about uh, the needs of the customer are the real difference because Nintendo, what Nintendo would ask for, Apple would be like, well, we don't have anything that does that, and Nintendo would say, well, can you make something like that and sell it to us? And Apple would say no because they don't want to have a customer, right? Yeah, Nintendo could use an M1, and that would be great, but that would be quote-unquote expensive, right, compared to the price. But, like, the Tegra X1, whatever they're using, probably costs Nintendo, like, $7. Like, it's it's so cheap, and it's, and it the power reflects that. It is not, not a powerful chip, but it is designed to do game-like things. So, it, you know, I... I if Nintendo went shopping in Apple's uh, portfolio, it would have to choose from like like the older Apple TV chips, essentially. Yeah, and and also, you know, the M1 is not necessarily what Nintendo would even want. Um, you know, there's obviously it's probably a larger chip than what they're using. Um, you know, it it might have different um, thermal and and just board space needs. It has way more CPU power, not enough GPU power, probably in terms of the balance. Right, like game game chips are usually lopsided in that way. They usually put as much like you know chip real estate and budget and you know both for power and heat and money into the gpu as possible and the cpu is usually okay but like you know they they need a lot more gpu power and not as much cpu power typically as as you'd put like in a macbook air and so the m1 is not even the right chip for them Uh, and but even if they did all this stuff 
parts of the part of the reasons why Apple's chips are so incredibly fast for Apple is that it, they're Apple's chips running Apple's compiled software on Apple's operating systems. <laughs> and you wouldn't have all those advantages if you just popped an Apple chip into someone else's hardware device running someone else's software with someone else's whole ecosystem. They're still, you know, fast competitive chips, but it wouldn't necessarily be as compelling even if all the other issues were worked out. It's not going to be what you think it would be by having all of a sudden Apple's chip in someone else's device. Well, it, it would be pretty amazing, but like you'd be totally wasting like the image processor, the neural engine. Nintendo doesn't <laughs> yeah. need those. Like that's just a waste of money. And those are a big part of the chip. Like they're and they're powerful and significant. Nintendo would be in the situation that it, Apple has been like sometimes where it's like, geez, well, the chip we're getting has this stuff on it and we don't actually have a use for it. But I guess we could put better cameras on the switch or does the switch even have a camera? I think it does. Right. No, I didn't but, think know, so. Anyway, the neural engine, can we use that in games somehow? Like it's but they don't this is not what they want or need, right? And and yet uh, Apple has invested a huge amount of time and money making it and they invest real estate on their chips and putting it there because it's incredibly important to the iPhone, which is what these chips are made for or arguably to the Mac. Um but still like go look at any benchmark of the M1 versus the Tegra X1 that's in a Switch. It's it's night and day right so it's and the m1 and the thing about the m1 is it would probably also fit within a similar power envelope that would work in the switch given how big it is so it you know the technology apple has access to let's put it that way it's cpu cores it's the manufacturing that it gets through tsmc the preferential treatment it gets for having its chip on the newest process when other people can't get their chips all that stuff anyone would love to have access to that secondarily i think they would like to have access to Apple's parts bin of crappy old chips, just because those are also better than the Tegra X1 in many, many ways. Uh, but yeah, that's none of this is ever going to happen. I, I, I can't, I can't imagine why they would, why Apple has ever thought about it. And I can't imagine Nintendo has ever thought about it just because that's not how the companies work, but it is fun to think about. I mean, the, the general disappointment over the OLED switch is because people thought they were going to get potentially a more powerful system. They could do better stuff. And that's, I'm kind of in, the same camp of I'm always wondering what could Nintendo do with more power, right? One example of that is Breath of the Wild. Breath of the Wild is a game that's not possible on the N64. It's not possible on the GameCube. It's probably not possible on the Wii or Wii U class of things, although it starts to get close. But the point is, games like Breath of the Wild became possible when Nintendo finally crawled up the power curve high enough that, hey, now we can do an open world game. Power for the sake of power isn't just like, oh, I don't need fancy graphics. No, it's gameplay. You can make more interesting, better games the more computing power you have. Nintendo travels that path. They're just behind everybody else. So every time I see an amazing Nintendo game, I think, imagine what Nintendo could do with PlayStation 5 power. Imagine what they could do with Xbox Series X power. We'll find out in seven years <laughs> 40 <laughs> years <laughs> right because they'll get there eventually but i am always looking for just, i wish nintendo would have a little bit more power but if you look at nintendo's balance sheet they're saying we use incredibly cheap components that are reliable and known quantities and we're selling every switch that we can make and i think they're they're approaching 100 million switch sold i think they're up to like 85 86 million which is close to the number of wii's they sold and the wii was a standard def console and the hd age if you remember that so you can't really fault Nintendo's strategy, but I am always looking for, I'm always fantasizing about, imagine if the Nintendo first-party game creators had access to 
modern day computing power rather than always being stuck with, you know, five years ago computing power. Thanks to our sponsors this week, ExpressVPN, Hover, and Linode. And thank you to our members who support us directly. You can join at atp.fm slash join. We will talk to you all next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. It was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Armin S I R A C U S A Syracuse. It's I love summer. It, it it's not like there are parts of it that are a little you know clumsy, but otherwise I, I I love summer. It's my favorite season. I'm always happiest in summer. Oh, speaking of summer and things you don't like and sweatiness in your Aaron chair, so this all connects in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sure I've asked about this when we talked about Aaron's in the past, but I always found the stupid bar on the front digs into my legs. Do you find that? It so it depends on how you sit. I mean, by the way, there's a reason why. None of Herman Miller's chairs made after the Aeron have that bar. Like it's not a great part of the design. It's it's kind of, you know it would be hard to get rid of with this particular design. But yeah, I agree that is a problem. Um, many people don't know that Aeron's come in three different sizes. Uh, there's like an A, B, and C size. And if you have the wrong size chair for you, um, so like if you have one that's too big for you in particular, then that bar will dig into your legs more than it necessarily might need to. Um, but also it just depends on how you sit, like ha- whatever you, what are your, whatever you're doing with your legs, um, like, you know, if you're like crossing one and sitting on it or whatever, like that bar can get in the way. Or, so it, or sticking your legs out way in front of you. Like uh, I, sometimes I do that and I think that exacerbates it, like putting, making your legs straight essentially. So they go way out under your desk, you know? Yeah. I'm trying that now. It, it doesn't really do it for me, but yeah, I mean, it depends like how much you would squish the fabric down. So yeah, like it, it, it you know, like any chair, it's going to be really good for most people, but you know, some people it's going to have like a little bit of a weird fit on them. And so that's why like typically, ideally, you know, in, in the good old days, we could go to stores. Uh, it was always useful to like go find a showroom for whatever brand you're looking at or somebody that sells it and go sit in one. Yeah. The Aarons were, were everywhere as the dot-com bubble was popping and I was working in the industry so they were easy to get cheap by the you know the, the crappy companies that i was working at weren't buying new aerons but as the other companies around us went out of business and they liquidated their stuff we got a bunch of used aerons and, and they're pretty sturdy and they hold up pretty well so they were all over the office so i got to try all different sizes and shapes and textures of uh chairs including aerons and that's that's how i learned that they were not the chair for me Although I do appreciate the the mesh thing. Although your house is air conditioned, so what do you like? Aren't you, <laughs> you keep it at a livable temperature? It's not like you're not like sweating like I am in this little unair conditioned cube here. I mean, so we use the air conditioning when it's really hot. It's on actually right now because it's both very hot, very humid, and going to storm. So like it's it's obviously good for that kind of situation. But I don't, and we talked about this before. I I don't like using air conditioning if I can get away without it 
and be somewhat comfortable because like I, w- I I have a ceiling fan, which I love, and I would so much rather just have this fan on all day blowing on me like at medium speed up to about 78 to 80 degrees. I, I, like unless it's like super humid, then maybe like a little bit lower than that. But because I don't like air conditioning because first of all, the way air conditioning works is it's blowing like 40 degree air into the room to chill the room down 40 degrees how how powerful is your air conditioning system? Maybe it's, oh. i hope it's not blowing 40 degree air. well but it's, it's frost <laughs> it's blowing very cold air into a room through some ducts to try to cool the room down to a, a low average temperature but and it's doing this in a cycle so the result is you have this cycle of very cold air blowing in and then it slowly warms up and so it's the point where it's almost too hot then you have very cold air blowing in again during that time, there's no wind there. I mean, you could turn the ceiling fans on in addition, but then, that, you know, so like, it, it, there's not a lot of air movement. You're in this like isolated place where you're, you're missing out on like the natural environment outside. You're missing out on the natural breeze and the, you know, the, the sound of the waves and the sound of the drunk people yelling outside. Like, so I, I miss all that. And then I go outside and, and I get blasted by the, this super hot temperature difference. Right, and then when I when I get back to my house, I'm blasted by the super cold temperature difference. There is no outfit I can wear that like because if I'm wearing shorts, then I'm cold in the house. Maybe you have the AC on too high or making it too cold in your house because your house should not be like a refrigerator. You're just trying to take the humidity out. No, but but because because the house is like because when you have the AC on, you like seal the house up. You kind of have to keep it a little bit lower. Than, than you would be able to tolerate if it was open. You know, otherwise it, like, it gets too stuffy because then, then it doesn't cycle on enough. So it's just, it's a whole thing. Like I, I'm, I'm glad, very glad we have air conditioning. There are times like this where, where we, it's really nice to have and, and you know, I, I, w- I would never go without it if I, if I had the choice. But I try to minimize how often I actually really use it because I like natural air. I like the breeze. I like when it's a little bit warm. Uh, you know, like I, I like all that. It's summer. It's supposed to be warm. And and this is all things I like. So ultimately I consider air conditioning like a necessary evil sometimes, but I would I'm not going to use it all the time if I can help it. Your your I'm assuming your house has an air to air heat exchanger, so you're not just recycling the same air. And I'm guessing that maybe it has a dehumidify function that doesn't change the temperature which is a thing you can also have like it shouldn't you shouldn't be stuck in the situation that people with crappy air conditioning are where you have to choose between freezing cold but dry and too hot you know what i mean like as far as i I, know it doesn't have a way to dehumidify so like the systems they're 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 heat pump air conditioners so like because it's mostly air conditioning with occasional heating uh and so you know, it's regular heat pump air conditioners, and I don't think there's any mode on them that I can access that mm-hmm. is just dehumidified. Then maybe you don't have the the heat exchanger. The, the the heat exchanger thing is where it takes fresh air from outside and changes that air to be the temperature that you want, so you can get some fresh air in, so you're not just literally recycling the same air, and that really helps get rid of the. I have. We had to get something like for modern energy codes. We had to get um, an ERV, which I. Th- think does that function i'm i'm still not entirely clear on why we needed the erv and what exactly it does besides make noise uh it's some kind of fan (laughs) that is like up in like the the ceiling (laughs) 
And I, I don't know what it does, but I'm pretty sure that is the goal it's trying to achieve. Energy recovery ventilator. Effective ventilation for humid climates. Yep, you definitely qualify. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, it's a, it's the air-to-air heat exchanger. It's exactly that. You can see the little diagram on the thing. It's a little diamond-shaped box with the air. Yep, that that is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, maybe, uh, I mean, that, that should help things. Um, and the air conditioning with the fan, you scoffed at that, but that is uh, definitely uh, a way to go. I... I don't know. I've having spent many summers on Long Island in various rental houses, some of which had air conditioning, some of which didn't. I can tell you, you want the ones with air conditioning. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's why it's we put very it in. hot and humid. Yeah, um, especially at night, like it, not being able to sleep because it's too hot and too humid is just the worst. So, uh, I'd avoid and call it a necessary evil. I would say, like again. Spend a lot of time without air conditioning, and you'll never call it evil again. Oh no, uh, I get what you're like, saying about yeah, like, wanting the fresh air. Yeah, like I won't go without it. I just don't like when I have to use it. Yeah, you should try just putting the air conditioning on, but at a slightly lower temperature. We'll still take most of the humidity out of there. You shouldn't ever feel cold in your house. I know this is a, a problem in the South. Sorry, Casey, where the air conditioning is on. Like I always feel like there's only one setting, which is like maximum. It's like how cold can <laughs> the HVA system, the HVAC system in this building, make it? Whatever the maximum is, just that's what I want it to be all the time. Because I don't know, people are always sweaty, and it's so cold that like. If you stay in there for a long period of time, you'll die of hypothermia. Like you, you, in the beginning, you come in, you come in from the ninety-eight degree, ninety percent humidity. Like ah, oh, it's so nice and cool in here. But you see the person working behind the counter, and they've got like earmuffs on because they're like, no, you can't stay in this building for any period of time. You'll die. It's too cold for humans. Uh, that's the bad rap that air conditioning gets. And what are the worst ones? It used to be movie theaters were really guilty of that. Or I guess to save money, they have stopped that more recently. Um, what are the other worst offenders? It's usually like smaller stores. The mall, the mall, it costs too much money to, to make that cold. But anything that's like, you know, like a mattress store or something, go into like a mattress store in Georgia and it's, you know, negative 27 degrees in there. <laughs> it's no good. It's cold in my office. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's not cold in my office, Marco. <laughs> How much sweat is on your upper lip right now? <laughs> is it non-zero? Because mine is non-zero. <laughs> I think I'm getting a blanket. I like air conditioning. It's too cold. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, what kind of only a monster or either a monster or someone who is just impossibly spoiled would say, oh, no, air conditioning is too much. I, I get what he's saying. A lot of people don't like air conditioning and I generally don't like it when it's too cold. But just well, that's the thing, too. Like air conditioning takes on a whole other level when you have to share the space with other people or other people are controlling it. Yeah, there's this disagreement about what the livable temperature for humans is. Because here's the problem. The, the hot people, of which I am not one in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not- saying, I don't think we have a lot of experience in that area of, on this show. Right. <laughs> the, the, you know, this, it usually isn't like in the bed of like who who's always cold at night and who's always hot. I'm always cold. I have bad circulation. I'm always cold. It's just the way I am, right? But the people who are hot do any amount of activity in the outdoors, like literally any amount. I took the garbage cans to the curb. Like now they're so overheated, they need to be in a freezer in a meat locker for two hours <laughs> to recover. And so that's why they always want the house to be a meat locker. It's like, you don't understand. I moved recently. And now I'm hot. <laughs> now, now the nuclear furnace that is my body is going to burn <laughs> And, and I'll, I will literally melt through the floor and journey to the center of the earth in a molten trail if I don't <laughs> live in this meat locker for two hours to get back to normal. And then, God forbid, they move again, right? Well, I, I think also like there's there's the problem that people have of of the the thermostat psychology. Two issues, I think. You know, number one is like people often think that if they turn it way past where they want it to be, 
it'll, it'll somehow get there faster. faster. <laughs> yeah, like it'll right. it'll make it work faster, like not realizing it's just an on-off switch. Um, but <laughs> also then there's like the thermostat battles between people where, mm. you know, if you're like keep adjusting it and then someone else comes up and adjusts it a different way and then you, you go back and adjust it again, I feel like you adjust it also in bigger swings in that context than, than you might necessarily want to. So like you walk up to a thermostat and it'll be set to like, you know, 62. And you're like, what? Who would set this? Like, that makes no sense. And then someone else comes over and sets it up to like 85. And you're like, no, this is not how this thing works. But like, you know, it's at this point, you know, it's become a human problem much more mm. than a than an HVAC problem. <laughs> oh, the rental houses we used to have, it was always a challenge, especially when we had lots of people in like a really big rental house for like lots of extended family in one house. Inevitably, if there was, you know, once we upgraded to houses that had air conditioning in them, which was a big upgrade, uh, the air conditioning would work way better in one corner of this sprawling house than the other. Uh, yeah. And so now you have like, okay, who gets to be comfortable tonight? <laughs> because <laughs> there's, you could, if you set it to this temperature, these two rooms will be comfortable and the rest will be incredibly hot. And you set it to this temperature, they'll freeze in there, but everyone else will be comfortable. So you really just kind of have to alternate nights of like, or not alternate nights. But I mean, what it boils down to usually is the old people get to be comfortable, which is a rule set that I'm becoming much happier with now that I am entering the class of the old people. Looks <laughs> <laughs> well, like, like the best beach houses here that, that we rented for air conditioning were the ones where each room had its own mini split unit. Like each bedroom, Mm -hmm. because like it's, you know, houses that weren't built with central air because they're too old. Well, that depends on who you're sleeping with, because if you're sleeping with one of the people who disagrees with the temperature, even a one room uh, sort of grain grain size is not sufficient. (laughs) Are you a like dual zone climate control in the car couple? There's, it's like the smoking section in restaurants. That's not a thing. I'm sorry. Like, we don't have a glass wall down the middle of our car. Oh, B- BS. It is absolutely a thing. You just have crappy cars. It is not a thing. You're sitting a foot from them. It's in one <laughs> interior space. It makes no... No, I never take it off of sink. It's always on sink. Because what the hell is the point? Like, it's like literally a foot and a half away. I understand what you're saying, <laughs> but I, I strongly disagree. It is not flawless. It's not perfect, but it absolutely works. Then see it. Then next time you're sitting next to Aaron, why don't you strike up a cigarette and see how great this dual zone thing works for you? Mm-hmm. 